calls for unity tonight as police search for a fifth suspect in an alleged gang rape in Brooklyn. Local police, local leaders say that this type of violence has no place in their community. CBS 2's Tracy Carrasco is live now in Prospect Heights with more for us. Tracy, what can you tell us? Well, now four of those suspects are being held here at the Special Victims Unit. And we've just learned from police sources that two of those suspects here have prior juvenile records. One was arrested for attempted murder. The other arrested for attempted robbery. Now, sources also tell us that police have identified that fifth suspect. They're still looking for him. He's on the run. They do believe he is the ringleader, the one with the gun. And community leaders say they want him off the streets. Putting up a united front, community leaders in Brownsville, Brooklyn, gathered in the same playground where police say the disturbing assault took place, demanding the fifth suspect turn himself in. We want to tell that individual who is out there that we will not rest as churches, as community leaders, until he is apprehended and faces the full extent of the law. Sources tell us two of the suspects, both 15 years old, were turned in by their parents. The other two, ages 14 and 17, were found by investigators on Sunday. You're not going to rape women in our community and think you're going to get away with it. Sources tell CBS2 the 18-year-old victim was drinking alcohol in Osborne Park last Thursday night with her father when police say these five teens seen on surveillance video approached them. One of the teens allegedly pointed a gun at the father and ordered him to leave. The father tells these community activists he ran to the store asking to use their phone but was denied. At the same time, police say the suspect took turns raping his daughter. The group marched from the playground and stormed into the store today looking for answers from employees. He feels bad for the situation, but he was not the one here to make the decision. It's unclear how urgently the father expressed his request. We pressed the store owner for his side of the story, but he refused to talk. Owner? Yeah, yeah, your side, your side, please. Can you tell us why? Your side, no, no, your side. However, other store employees in the area tell us customers are constantly asking to use their phones. They were hanging outside, waiting nobody. But for me, just, you know, problem. So, do people ask a lot? Yeah, a lot. Now, sources tell us that two of the suspects here in custody have said that the incident with the woman was consensual. Now, charges have not yet been filed. Reporting live from Brooklyn, Tracy Carrasco, CBS 2 News. Stop down and hold up. I said, hold up. I said, Tonight, the Brooklyn DA will move to dismiss rape charges against five teenagers. The alleged victim now admits she lied. CBS 2's Tony Aiello live now in Brownsville with late details. Tony. Christine, these were explosive charges here at Osborne Park. January 7th, an 18-year-old woman claimed five teenagers chased her father away at gunpoint and then raped her. But her story kept changing. Tonight, the case has collapsed. The five young men were shown, named, and shamed by local politicians outraged by the gang rape allegations. They should be more afraid of us yep. today 
than of the police. But the alleged victim of a gunpoint sex assault at Osborne Playground now has recanted. Attorney Abdullah Green represents one of the exonerated teenagers. He can finally go back to some normalcy in his life. Um, you can only imagine he's 15, the trauma that he experienced, the embarrassment. When this news story first broke, it went nationwide. It sounded really horrendous. So the family is glad that this is going to be behind them. Prosecutors now believe the 18-year-old woman was in this park drinking with her father, from whom she'd been separated most of her life. There was sexual contact between the two. The DA says the group of young men saw what was going on and one or more of them joined in. Quote, this young woman's father and the five young men engaged in conduct that was reprehensible and wrong. But because of a lack of reliable evidence, criminal charges simply cannot be sustained. The father later claimed he sought help at this deli, but was denied. In January, community activists angrily confronted deli workers. A worker says the anger has now subsided. No, no problem. This activist denies there was a rush to judgment. We don't have the luxury of sitting back and just letting things happen in our community. If an allegation was like that, we sound the alarm. A source describes the young woman as troubled. The district attorney's office says victims advocates in that office are offering to uh, work with her to provide her help and support, but she made it clear recently that she wouldn't cooperate with criminal charges, so case dismissed. Live in Brownsville, Brooklyn, Tony Aiello, CBS 2 News. All right, Tony, thank you. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Wednesday, January 19, 2022, so I have been told. This is our book club, Irregular Day, uh, just for this one time. Uh, on Wednesday, we'll be back on our regular Thursday uh, next week, uh, but only because we have a guest tomorrow, white man, talk more about that later. Anyway, uh, our broadcast for today, the book club, this is our sixth installment on Alice Siebold's Lucky. We will conclude next Friday. Uh, we could have finished today, but we would have had to go overtime by like 20 minutes to a half hour. Uh, and since we're already on an irregular day, I thought I would much rather just do uh, one segment today and then next week we can round out and take our time and we'll have like an hour segment and then we can wrap up proper next week. So second to last segment this week, a little bit shorter, then we can wrap up on our normal Thursday next week. Uh, we left off in the book, chapter 11, I believe. They don't have numbers for the chapters. Uh, we were in the middle of the court scene. Alice Siebold was just on the stand. Uh, she had one of the lines of the book when being on the stand and say, well, who can you pointed out the defendant? Only black person here. And she responds, I was guilty for the race of my rapist. Guilty for the lack of representation of them in the legal profession in the city of Syracuse. Guilty that he was the only black man in the room. So melodramatic. Mm. So she was on the stand and went through her misidentification at uh, the lineup uh, and all of her excuses for that. And we stopped uh, the prosecuting attorney is going to come back and try to do the redirect to clean up some of this. That's what we'll resume at for this week. The audio segment that we heard at the beginning, courtesy of B in Toronto. She reminded me uh, of this case from 2016, the 
Brownville rape case. I'm sure folks in New York remember that or should. Can you believe it has been six years since all of that? I had forgotten about it and it was difficult for me to find information about it because that case is cross-referenced with the Central Park Central Park 5 rape case so frequently that it's hard most of the time you'll just be redirected to information about the Central Park 5 rape case but the Brownsville rape case from January of 2016 this time uh, of that year these five young males non-white males believe they were all black uh, get accused uh, of raping running off this father in the park and raping this young lady and then it turned out ah, did not happen incidentally we got some more of the super freak right because they say the young lady was messing around with her dad in the park before they all got there right Oedipus Rex didn't we just talk about that with Woody Allen and all right Oedipus Rex yeah anywho uh, and then that moron he says sobriety would be best because that's in both of these right all this underage drinking right anyway two things I will highlight quickly one it's often said you know we can't sit out here and just uh, cape for black males and make excuses for their lame terroristic behavior the Bill Cosby's and R. Kelly's and somebody accuses them of some sort of sexually inappropriate behavior we can't just immediately oh no 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 that's not true you're just attacking the black male this is just a public lynching you're going after Clarence Thomas and all these folks sometimes they you know have carried out these acts right say we can't just sit here and say every time it's a lynching I didn't hear one person in that news report say anything of the sort they didn't this witch is lying nobody there they said it was a united front own parents turned him in <laughs> right that's what they said and then when all of the information came out and the late great Ken Thompson who died the same year about 10 months later dismisses the charges without prejudice meaning if they ever come up with any additional information there can be no charges because of all the evidence that came out later oh I lied after all this comes out do the folks say oops our bad we should have been there for our black princes we should have been there for our black kings is that what you heard I didn't hear that it was hey we don't have the luxury in our community we have to sound the alarm did you hear them say it was black rapists on the loose that's what I heard I didn't hear anything about lynching Emmett Till nothing Tawana Brawley nothing it was we with you turn them in right now they should be afraid of us anywho before we get to Alice Siebold Lucky we will take one moment to hear Henry in Chicago last week told us about <laughs> author of the great American classic Precious later adapted into a major motion picture that before all of that she was known for her spoken word piece what was that poetry piece about we will hear since Alice Siebold right she has a poem in her book so we'll get one more bit of poetry and then we'll push off to the book club Sapphire. Talk to us. Let's do it.
wild thing. And I'm running, running wild, running free, like soldiers down the beach, like somebody just threw me the ball. My thighs pump through the air like tires rolling down the highway, big and round, eating up the ground of America. But I've never been any further than 42nd Street. Below that is as unfamiliar as my father's face, foreign as the smell of white girls' pussy, white girls on TV. My whole world is black and brown and closed till I open it with a rock, christen it with blood. Bop, bop, the music pops through me like electric shock. My sweat is a river running through my liver green with hate. My veins bulge out like tomorrow. My dick is the Empire State Building. I eat your fear like a chimpanzee. Ow, 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 wee. My sneakers glide off the cement like white dreams looking out at the world through a cage of cabbage and my mother's fat hollering, don't do this and don't do that. I scream against the restraint of her big ass sitting on my face drowning my dreams in sameness. I'm scared to go, it hurts me to stay. She sits cross-legged in front of the TV telling me no, feeding me, clothing me, bathing me in her ugliness. High, high in the sky, 18th floor of the projects. Her welfare check buys me $85 sneakers but can't buy me a father. She makes cornbread from Jiffy Box Mix, buys me a coat, $400, leather like everybody else's. I wear the best man, 14-karat gold chain I take off before I go wilding. Fuck you, nigga, nobody touches my gold. My name is Leroy, L-E-R-O-Y, bold gold. I got the goods that make the ladies young and old. Sign your name across my heart. I want you to be my baby. Rapper D, rapper G, rapper I. My name is lightning across the sky. So what I can't read? You supposed to teach me. You the teacher. I'm the ape. Black ape in white sneakers. Ha, ha, ha. I rape, rape, rape. I do the wild thing. I do the wild thing. My teacher asked me what would I do if I had six months to live. I tell her I'd fuck her, sell dope, and do the wild thing. My thighs are locomotives hurling me through the underbrush of Central Park, the jungle. I either want to be a cop or the biggest dope dealer in Harlem when I grow up. I feel good. It's a man's world. My sound is king. I am the black man's sound. Get off my face, whining bitch. No, I didn't go to school today and I ain't going tomorrow. I like how the sky looks when I'm running. My clothes are new and shiny. My tooth gleams gold. I'm fast as a wolf. I need a rabbit. The sky is falling, calling my name. Leroy, Leroy. I look up, blood bust in my throat. It's my homeboys, LDCK and Bean But Hey man, what's up? I got the moon in my throat. I remember when Christ sucked my dick behind the pulpit. I was six years old. He made me promise not to tell no one. I eat cornbread and collard greens. I only wear Adidas, man. I'm my own man. They can wear Nike or New Balance if they want. I wear Adidas. I'm LD, lover, mover, man with the money. All the girls know me. I'm classified as mildly retarded, but I'm not. At least I don't think I am. Special education classes eat up my brain like last week greens rotting in plastic containers. My mother never throws away anything. I could kill her. I could kill her. All those years, all those years, I sat, I sat in classes for the mentally retarded so she could get the extra money welfare gives for retarded kids so she could get some money, some motherfucking money. That bitch, I could kill her. 
All the years I sat next to kids who shitted on themselves, dreaming amid rooms of dull eyes that one day my rhymes would break open the sky and my name would be written across the marquee at the Apollo in bold gold me, bigger than run DMC. Rapper G, rapper O, rapper me, let's go, I scream. My dick is a locomotive, my sister eats like a 50 cent hot dogs. I scream, I said, let's go. It's 40 of us, a black wall of sin. The God of our fathers descends down and blesses us. I say, thank you, Jesus. Now let's do the wild thing. I pop off the cement like toast out of toaster. Hot, hard, crumbling, running, running. The park is green, combat operation, lost soul, looking for Lieutenant Callie, Jim Jones, anybody who could direct this spurt of semen rising to the sky. Soldiers flying through the rhythm. Oh man, nigga, please, nigga, 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 I know who I am. My soul sinks to its knees and howls under the moon, rising full. Let's get a female jogger, I shout into the twilight, looking at the middle-class thighs pumping past me. Cadres of bitches who deserve to die for thinking they're better than me. You ain't better than nobody, bitch. The rock begs my hand to hold it. It says, come on, man. T.W. Pitbull, J.D. and me grab the bitch. Ugly, big-nosed, white bitch, but she's beautiful because she's white. She's beautiful because she's skinny. She's beautiful because she's going to die because her daddy's going to cry, bitch. I bring the rock down on her head. Sounds dull and flat like the time I busted the kitten's head. The blood is real and red. My dick rises. I tear off her bra. Feel her perfect pink breast like Brooke Shields, like the bitches in Playboy shit. I come all over myself. I bring the rock down, the sound has rhythm. Hip-hop ain't gonna stop till your face sees what I see every day. Walls of blood, walls of blood. She's wriggling like a pig in the mud. I never seen a pig or cow step on TV. Her nipples are like hard strawberries. My mouth tastes like pesticide. I fart, Yousef slams her across the face with a pipe. My dick won't get hard no more. I bring the rock down, removing what she looks like forever. Ugly bitch, ugly bitch. I get up, blood on my hands, semen in my jeans. The sky is black, the trees are green. I feel good, baby. I just did the wild thing. Wild thing. Wild I was tired, but knew now that Mastine would handle me gently if he could. His tone was firm, but I trusted him. Mastine was concerned with working Paquette's former territory, going back to strengthen weak lines. He made a quick five points. First, he established how late it was and how tired I was when I gave my statement on the night of the rape. He had me detail all the things I had been through and on no sleep. Then he moved on to my statement on October 5th, the one Paquette had gleefully put forth to me, the feeling versus sure. Mastime was able to establish that, as I had said, it was an affidavit in which I retold the encounter with Madison chronologically. I first saw him from the back and had a feeling. I then saw him face on and was sure. 
Then he asked me if anyone was with me. He wanted to point out that because my father was present, I had elected to decline the presence of a rape crisis representative. My father is waiting outside, I said. This fact didn't seem real to me. Far away, in the hall outside, he was reading, Latin. I hadn't thought of him since entering the courtroom. I couldn't. Mastine asked me how long I had been under Madison in the tunnel and how far away from his face I was. One centimeter, I said. Then he asked me a question I felt uncomfortable with, one I had known he might ask if Paquette's approach warranted it. Could you give the judge an idea of how many young black men you would see on a daily average in your travels, or class, or dormitory, or at all? Paquette objected. I knew why. It went straight to his case. Overruled, said Gorman. I said a lot, and Mastine had me quantify. More than 50 or less? I said that it was more. The whole thing made me uncomfortable, separating the students I knew by their race, pooling them into columns, and tabulating their number. But this wouldn't be the first time, or the last, that I wished my rapist had been white. Mastine had no further questions. Paquette got up only to have me repeat one thing. He wanted me to repeat the distance of Madison's face from mine during the rape itself. I did. One centimeter. Later, he would try and use my certainty against me, quoting this distance in his final statement as to why I couldn't be trusted as a credible witness. No redirect, Mastine said. You are excused, Judge Gorman said, and I stood. My legs were shaky underneath me, and I had sweat through my skirt and stockings and slip. The male bailiff who had led me in came toward the center of the room and waited for me. He took me out. Down the hall, Murphy spotted me and helped my father gather his books. The bailiff looked at me. I've been in this business for 30 years, he said. You are the best rape witness I've ever seen on the stand. I would hold on to that moment for years. The bailiff walked back toward court. Murphy hustled me off. We want to get away from the door, he said. They'll be breaking for lunch. Are you okay? My dad asked. I'm fine, I said. I did not recognize him as my father. He was just a person standing there, like all the rest. I was shaking and needed to sit down. The three of us, Murphy, my father, and I, returned to their bench. They spoke to me. I don't remember what they said. It was over. Gail breezed out of the courtroom and over to us. She looked at my father. Your daughter's an excellent witness, bud, she said. Thank you, my father said. Was I okay, Gail? I asked. I was worried. He was really mean. That's his job, she said. But you held up under him. I was watching the judge. What did he look like? I asked. The judge? He looked exhausted, she said, smiling. Billy is really tired. I wanted to get up there so bad. We have a break until two, and then it's the doctor, another pregnant lady. It was like a relay race, I realized. 
The leg-eyed run had been arduous and long, but there were still others. More questions and answers, more key witnesses, many more hours to Gail's day. If I learn anything, I'll contact the detective, she said, turning to me. She extended her hand to my father. Nice to meet you, bud. You can be proud. I hope the next time we meet, it's under more pleasant circumstances, he said. It had just hit him. We were leaving. Gail hugged me. I had never hugged a pregnant woman before, found it awkward, almost genteel, the way both she and I had to lean only the upper halves of our bodies in. You're incredible, kiddo, she said quietly to me. Murphy drove us back to Hotel Syracuse, where we packed. I may have slept. My father called my mother. I don't remember those hours. My attention had been so focused that now I let go. I was aware that my case was still continuing as we folded clothes and waited for Murphy to pick us up later that afternoon. My father and I sat on the edges of the twin beds. Putting distance between us and the city of Syracuse was our unspoken goal. We knew the plane would do it. We waited. Murphy came early to meet us. He brought news. Gail wanted to be the one to tell you, he said, but she couldn't get away. My father and I were in the carpeted lobby, our red American tourister luggage waiting nearby. They got him, he said joyfully. Guilty on six counts. He was remanded to jail. I went blank. My legs felt weak beneath me. Thank God, my father said. He said this quietly, acknowledging an answered prayer. We were in the car. Murphy was chattering. He was high off it. I sat in the back of the car while my father and Murphy sat in the front. My hands were cold and limp. I remember feeling them distinctly resting on either side of me, useless. At the airport, while my father and Murphy sat off at a distance in an airport lounge, I called my mother from a payphone. Murphy offered to buy my father a drink. I pushed in my home phone number and waited. Hello, my mother said. Mom, it's Alice. I have news. I faced the wall and cupped the mouthpiece in both hands. We did it, Mom, I said. All six counts, except the weapons one. He was remanded to jail. I didn't know what remanded meant yet, but I used the word. My mother was ecstatic. She shouted up and down the house in Paoli. She did it! She did it! She did it! Over and over again. She could not contain her joy. I had done it. Murphy and my father exited the bar. Our flight was boarding soon. I found out what remanded meant. It meant Madison would not be released between conviction and sentencing. They had handcuffed him inside the courtroom as the charges were read. This made Murphy gleeful. I wish I could have been there to see his face. It had been a long good day for John Murphy, and, as my father confided on the airplane, Murphy could really pack the drinks away. But who could blame him? He was heady, celebratory, off to see his Alice. I was drained. Though it took me a while to realize it, I, too, had been remanded. I would be held over for a long time. On June 2nd, I received a letter from the probation department of the county of Onondaga. 
They wrote to inform me that they were conducting a pre-sentence investigation of a young man who was recently found guilty after trial of rape first degree, sodomy first degree, and other related charges. These charges, the letter stated, stem from an incident in which you were the victim. They wrote to inquire if I had any input on the sentencing recommendation. I wrote back. I recommended the maximum sentence allowable under the law and quoted Madison calling me the worst bitch. I knew Syracuse had been voted the seventh best city to live in that year, and I pointedly stated that having men like Madison on the streets wouldn't bolster this reputation. I knew my best hope to be heard was by making the point that a maximum sentence would make the men who sentenced him look good. That way, they wouldn't be doing it for me, but for the people who elected them and paid their salaries. I knew this. Whatever skills I had, I used. I closed my letter by signing it over my title, Victim. On July 13, 1982, in a court where Gorman presided and Mastine, Paquette, and Madison were in attendance, Gregory Madison was sentenced. It was the maximum for rape and sodomy, eight and a third to 25 years. The larger sentences, along with lesser ones given for the four remaining charges, would run concurrently. Mastine called to tell me. He also informed me that Gail had given birth. My mother and I went shopping for a gift. When I saw Gail 15 years later, she brought the gift along to show me she remembered. That summer, I began my makeover. I had been raped, but I had also been raised on Seventeen and Glamour and Vogue. The possibilities of the before and after that I had been presented with all my life took hold. Besides, those around me, namely my mother now, with my sister working in Washington before leaving for Syria and my father off in Spain, encouraged me to move on with my life. You don't want to become defined by the rape, she said, and I agreed. I got a job in an ill-fated t-shirt shop where I was the only employee. I stamped badges in an unventilated attic and did sloppy silk screening for local softball teams. My boss, who was 23, was out hustling up business around town. Sometimes he was drunk and showed up with his buddies to watch TV. I was wearing huge clothes at the time, ones I made myself, what even my mother called tent dresses and I wore a lot of them in the June and July heat of 1982. One day, when my boss and his friends taunted me to show a little flesh, I turned around and walked out. I drove home in my father's car, covered in inks. It was just me and my mother again, like the summer when I turned 15. I kept looking for another job. My journal is full of shoe store interviews and office supply store applications. But like in any suburb during the summer, jobs were scarce once midsummer hit. Mom was trying to lose weight. I decided to join her. We watched Richard Simmons and bought an exercise bike. I have a memory of the Scarsdale diet, small measured steak and chicken bits that we could barely get down. This diet is costing a fortune, my mother said, as we ate more meat that summer than I have since. But I began to take off pounds. I would sit in front of the television in the morning and watch obese women cry with Simmons, 
setting off a sort of round robin of tears among the guest, Simmons, and the studio audience. Sometimes I cried too, not because I thought I was as fat as the women on the screen, but because I thought I knew exactly how ugly they felt. I might have been able to get down the street without being called names, and I could see my shoelaces over my belt, but I identified with Simmons' guests as I did with no one else. They were the walking, talking ostracized who had done nothing wrong. So I cried, and I got on that bike, and I hated my body. I used that hate to shed 15 pounds. In late summer, after my father had returned from Spain, the three of us were out in the yard doing yard work. I was supposed to ride the ride-on mower. A typical Seabold fight erupted. I didn't want to, etc. Why did Mary get to go live in D.C. and then go to Syria? My father called me ungrateful. It escalated. Suddenly, just as it was traveling down the familiar path to all-out shouting, I burst into tears. I started crying but couldn't stop. I ran inside up to my room. Trying to sop up the tears was futile. I cried until I was spent, dehydrated. My eyes and the flesh around them, a sight map of broken capillaries. Later, I didn't want to talk about it. I was putting the rape and the trial behind me. Lila and I wrote back and forth to each other all summer. She was dieting too. Our letters to one another read like journal entries, long, pondering pieces written to have company during the writing as much as to really share any information bulletins about ourselves. We were hot and bored, 19 and stuck at home with our parents. We told each other our life stories in those rambling letters, how we felt about everything from our individual family members to boys we knew at school. I don't remember writing her about the trial in detail. If I did, her letters don't reflect it. I got one postcard in the early summer congratulating me. That's it. It disappeared from our landscape after that. As it did from almost everyone's. The trial seemed to have provided a very solid and heavy back door to the whole thing. Anyone who had actually entered that house with me, looked or walked into the rooms there, was very happy to finally leave the place. The door was shut. I remember agreeing with my mother that I had gone through a death and rebirth phenomenon in the span of one year, rape to trial. Now the land was new, and I could make of it anything I wished. Lila Sue and I planned, via our letters, for the coming year. Lila was bringing a kitten down from a litter at home. I had made a pact with my mother. If I jumped up and down enough on a couch that she hated, we might convince my father when he returned from Spain that I should take it to school. I rented a truck with Sue, who lived nearby. My mother was cheery and sent me off with new clothes that fit my new figure. This was going to be the turnaround year. I was going to do what I called live normal now. That fall, Mary Alice was in London in an exchange program. So were other friends. Tess was on leave. I missed them only vaguely. Lila was my living, breathing soulmate. We went everywhere together and cooked up crazy schemes. We both wanted boyfriends. I played the role of the experienced one to Lila's innocent. Over the summer, I had made us matching skirts. 
We wore these and anything black whenever we went out. Ken Childs was at a loss without Casey, who was also in London, and we began to pal around. I thought he was cute and, the most important fact, he already knew about me. The three of us went dancing together at on-campus clubs and art student parties. I wanted to be a lawyer now. People liked hearing this ambition, so I said it a lot. Because of Tess, I wanted to go to Ireland. I told people that, too. I went to poetry and fiction readings and indulged in the wine and cheese. I took an independent study in poetry with Hayden Carruth and an independent with Raymond Carver, whom I've always thought Tess had assigned to babysit me. One day, I ran into Maria Flores on the street. I had written her a triumphant letter early in the summer about the trial. I told her that I'd felt her there with me in the courtroom and that I hoped she could take some solace in this. Her letter back was, to be honest, too real for me. I have a brace on my leg, my ankle is healed, and I walk with a cane due to nerve damage. My suicidal tendencies have lessened, though frankly, they aren't all gone. She worried about her cane inhibiting her from meeting new people and felt ashamed that she had not completed her job as a resident advisor. She ended the letter with a quote from Khalil Gibran. We are all prisoners, but some of us are in cells with windows and some without. I couldn't see it for years, but if one of us had a window, it was Maria who was looking out. I got off scot-free, I remember saying to Lila. She'll wear the rape eternally. I was dancing and falling in love. This time, a boy in Lila's math class, Steve Sherman. I told him about the rape after we had gone to see a movie and had a few drinks. I remember that he was wonderful with it, that he was shocked and horrified, but comforting. He knew what to say, told me I was beautiful, walked me home and kissed me on the cheek. I think he also liked taking care of me. By that Christmas, he became a fixture at our house. At home, my mother was on an upswing, too. She was trying new drugs, Elevil and Xanax, and even biorhythm therapies, things she had never considered before. Group therapy was on the horizon. My mother trusting someone other than herself. You inspire me, kiddo, she wrote. If you can go through what you did and go back out, I figure this old gal can, too. I had reached some positive ground zero. The world was new and open to me. I worked on the literary magazine, The Review, and was chosen to be editor when I became a senior. The English department asked me to represent them in the Glasscock Poetry Competition, which was held annually at Mount Holyoke College. Years before, my mother had fled Mount Holyoke, leaving behind a fellowship for graduate school. She recalls that it felt like a death sentence to her. All her friends were getting married, and she, the egghead, was going off to a place full of nuns and lesbians. So I went back to reclaim something for my mother and to take the stage for rape. I didn't win. I came in second. I read Conviction. Reading it aloud had made me shake with it, the truth of my hate. One of the judges, Diane Wachowski, took me aside and told me that subjects like rape had a place in poetry, but that I would never win the prizes or cultivate an audience at large that way. Lila and I thrilled at stupid movies, and we saw one the day I got back from Massachusetts. 
Sylvester Stallone in First Blood. It played at the 50-cent movie theater near our house. We laughed hysterically at the cartoonish action on the screen in front of us, guffawing so hard we were crying and could barely see or breathe. We would have been kicked out if anyone else had been in the theater to complain, but we were alone in the old rundown movie house. Me Rambo, you Jane, Lila said and beat her chest. Me good muscle, you girl muscle. Grr, dee-hee. Near the end of the film, someone cleared his throat, quite audibly. Lila and I froze, but kept staring at the screen. I thought we were alone, she whispered. So did I, I said. We kept it down and attempted a respectful silence during the final raging shootout scenes. We did this by digging our nails into each other's arms and biting our lips. We giggled, but we did not erupt fully. When it was over and the lights went up, we were alone again. We started letting out what we had held back until we turned the corner and saw the manager of the theater standing there. You think Vietnam is funny? He was an imposing man, muscle gone to fat, and with a pencil mustache that slid across his upper lip like Madison's first attorney. No, we both said. He blocked our way to the exit. Certainly sounded like you were laughing to me, he said. It's pretty exaggerated, I said, expecting him to see my point. I was in Nam, he said. Were you? Lila was scared and holding on to my hand. I said, No, sir, and I respect the veterans that fought. We didn't mean to offend. We were laughing because we found the level of machismo exaggerated. He stared at me as if I had blocked him with reason, when what I had really blocked him with were words found inside me when under threat, a skill I now had. He let us pass but warned us he did not want to see us again in his theater. We didn't even try to get our giddy mood back. I was furious as we walked down the hill toward home. It sucks being a woman, I said, stating the obvious. You always get smashed. Lila wasn't ready to go there yet. She was busy trying to see his point. In my mind, I was doing now what I did more and more of, fighting a man hand to hand, and no matter how I played it, losing every time. There were good men and bad, thinking men and muscle. I made that separation in my mind. I began to categorize them this way. Steve, who had a sort of ropey runner's body, was gentle in his movements and cared most about his studies. He would sit for hours until he had memorized, verbatim, the chapters of his textbooks. His Ukrainian immigrant parents were paying cash for his education, as they had for their cars and house. It was expected that he would study every day for hours. I began a sort of unconscious lying to myself when engaged in sex. Steve's pleasure was all I focused on, the point of the journey. So if there were bumps and memories, painful flashes of the night in the tunnel, I rode over them, numbed. Happy when Steve was happy, I was always ready to pop right out of bed and go on a walk or read my latest poem. If I could get back to the brain in time, like oxygen, the sex didn't hurt as much. And there was the color of his skin, I could focus on a patch of white flesh and begin. As Steve was being gentle and ardent, inside I was talking myself down the path again. This is not Thorndon Park. He is your friend. Gregory Madison is in Attica. You are fine. It often worked to get me through it, 
like gritting your teeth on a frightening carnival ride that those around you appear to enjoy. If you can't do, mimic. Your brain is still alive. By late in the year, I had established myself as a sort of chubby New Age diva. The art students knew who I was, and so did the poets. I threw a party with the confidence it would be packed, and it was. Steve bought me white vinyl dance versions of my favorite songs and made dance tapes from them. Mary Alice and Casey were back from London and showed up. The whole apartment house throbbed, but this time it was with my music and my friends. I got an A's in Carus and Carver's Independence and was now taking a class with a poet named Jack Gilbert. I couldn't believe my luck. Even Gilbert showed up. In the kitchen, a trash can full of rot gut punch had more and more ingredients added as the partygoers got drunk. Lila's spices were being pitched in wholesale, and small things, like forks and houseplants, joined the nutmeg and arrowroot. Suddenly, people we didn't know began to show up. Boys. They were loud and strong and went for the pretty girls like magnets. This meant Mary Alice, who, by that time, was very drunk. The dancing on the dance floor got sexual. Steve almost had a fight with a stranger who was moving in on one of his female friends. The music got louder, a speaker blew, the booze ran out. All of this resulted in the sanest and soberest, who had not left already, peeling out. I stood like a barking Scotty by Mary Alice. When boys came toward her, I steered them off. I threatened them with what they respected, a man. Mary Alice's boyfriend, I lied, was the captain of the basketball team and do soon with his teammates. If they doubted me, I got up in their faces and did my straight shooting act. I'd listened to the detectives and how they talked, knew how to sound streetwise. Mary Alice decided to leave, and Steve and I found her a person we trusted to take her home. Near the door, as we were saying goodbye, she passed out. I and those around us stood and stared at her as she lay unconscious on the floor. I thought she was faking, and at first said, Come on, Mary Alice, get up. Her hair had been so beautiful as she fell, the long golden mane swinging up and out. I got down on my hands and knees and tried to prod her. No luck. Steve came through the stragglers and strangers. As we stood over her in a circle, boys began to offer to take her home. I can only think of dogs here, from barking Scotty to scrappy terrier to sudden superhuman strength. I wouldn't even let Steve carry her. I picked Mary Alice up in my arms, all 115 pounds of her, and carried her, with Lila and Steve clearing the way, back to Lila's room. We lay her out on the bed. She was a drunk co-ed, but looked like a sleeping angel. The rest of my night was devoted to making sure she stayed that way. When cruisers showed up because of the complaints of neighbors, I watched the party break down and Steve and Lila escort the more intoxicated strangers out. Mary Alice spent the night. In the morning, the place was sticky, and we discovered a friend of a friend of someone's who'd passed out and fell behind the couch. The summer between my junior and senior years, Steve and I lived in the apartment together and took summer school. Morally, my mother was able to adjust to the idea of me living with a man because, as she said, it's nice to think you have a built-in security guard. Following summer school, I got my first taste of teaching by assisting at an art camp for gifted students at Bucknell University. If I didn't become a lawyer, I decided, I would teach. 
I had no way of knowing then that teaching would end up being my lifeline, my way back. By my senior year, I was a habitué of the poetry and fiction readings held on campus. I also worked as a waitress at Cosmo's Pizza Shop on Marshall Street, and my work schedule, combined with these evening readings, meant that I was out at night a lot. Lila seemed not to mind. She had the apartment to herself, or shared it peaceably with our new roommate, Pat. Lila found Pat via the anthropology department. He was younger than we were by two years and only a sophomore. Lila and I had discovered porn magazines in his room, fetish publications like Jugs, and one that featured only nude, obese women. But he paid the rent and kept to himself. I was just happy that he didn't look the part of the regular bug eaters in anthropology. He was tall and slim with shoulder-length black hair. His Italian ancestry meant a lot to him, as did his love of shock. He showed Lila and me the speculum he had pilfered from a relative who was a gynecologist. He strung it to the light pole of his overhead. The three of us had begun to adjust to one another by November of that year. After two months, Lila and I were getting used to Pat's love of pranks. He liked to touch a spot on your collarbone and say, what's that? When you looked down, he chucked you under the chin. Or he would bring you a cup of coffee, and when you reached for it, pull it away. He teased us, and when he went too far, Lila and I whined in response. Lila, who had a younger brother, told me that with Pat in the house, it was as if she had never left home. In a course called Ecstatic Religion, I sat next to a boy named Mark. Like Jamie, he was tall and blonde, and in small ways didn't fit in. He didn't go to Syracuse. He was getting a degree in landscape architecture from SUNY's forestry school, which, like a dependent little sister, shared buildings and grounds with Syracuse. He had also come of age in New York's Chelsea district. This made him wise beyond his 21 years and sophisticated, or so it seemed to me. He had friends with Loss and Soho, places he promised that he would show me someday. After religion class, we had chaste but passionate sessions about that day's topics. The history of shamans and the occult garnered our intense intellectual scrutiny. He gave me tapes of Philip Glass and knew things about music and art that I didn't. He spoke wryly on subjects like Jacqueline Suzanne's adoration of Ethel Merman. He represented what my mother had always said was the best of New York, culture by birthright, even if the love tryst of the Merm and the author of The Valley of the Dolls weren't what she meant. Suddenly, Steve's earnestness, his caring attention to my pains and ills, didn't seem as attractive as Mark's seen-it-all, done-it-all world. When I told my jokes, why doesn't a rape trial rate a mention on ye old resume, Mark would laugh and join the riff, whereas Steve would stop me, place a hand on my shoulder and say, you know that's not really funny, right? Mark had a car, cable television, other girls thought he was cute. He wasn't afraid of drinking, and he smoked cigarettes like a chimney. He cursed, and because he was going to school for architecture, he drew. He had also been honest and upfront with me from the beginning. When we'd met the year before at a party, we were clearly attracted to each other. He told me later that three boys had pulled him into the bathroom after they saw him talking to me. FYI, Mark, that girl's been raped. Mark had said, so? And they had looked at him dismayed. Do we have to spell it out for you? But Mark was a natural feminist. 
His mother had been unceremoniously dumped for a much younger woman. One of his sisters was a lesbian and called her two male cats the girls. The other was a lawyer with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. He had read more Virginia Woolf than I had, and he introduced me to the work of Mary Daly and Andrea Dworkin. He was a revelation to me. I was to him as well. He knew names and theories I had never heard, but when he met me, I was the only woman he knew who had been raped, or who he knew to have been. I began having fun with Mark while I struggled with Steve. How many security guards does one girl need? Lila asked one day, after I'd been on the phone twice to each. I didn't have an answer save to say I had never been popular with boys, and suddenly I felt I was. Two boys both wanted me. Our old roommate, Sue, had done a photo essay for her senior project, and she'd left all sorts of makeup behind. One night, when Pat was at the library, I decided to play fashion photog and snap pictures of Lila. I dressed her up. I made her take off her glasses, and we painted heavy coal lines across her eyes. I really laid it on. Deep blues and blacks surrounded her eyes. Her lips were a horrible dark red. I posed her in the hallway of the apartment and began to point and shoot. We were having a wonderful time, just the two of us. I had her lie on the floor and glance up or bring her shirt down over her shoulder for what we called a skin shot. I mimicked what I thought real fashion photographers said to get models in the mood. It's hot. You're in the Sahara. A beautiful man is bringing you a pina colada. Or somewhere, the only true love of your life is freezing to death in Antarctica. He is one precious photo of you to keep him alive, and this is it. I want sex, sincerity, searing intelligence. When she wasn't distorting her features to achieve the look, she was cracking up. I posed her in front of the full-length mirror on the outside of the bathroom door and took a long shot with me in it. I had her sit with her head in profile and her hands in black gloves. My favorites back then were by far the more dramatic. In them, she is crawling on her hands and knees, blind eyes wide and lined with color, down the hall outside my bedroom. I think of them now as Lila's before shots. A week before Thanksgiving, 1983, the poet Robert Bly gave a reading in the auditorium of the Hall of Languages. I was anxious to see him, having greedily read his poems at the urging of both Tess and Hayden Carruth. Lila was at home studying for the kind of killer Tess that, as a poetry major, I no longer had to concern myself with. Pat had gone to study in Bird Library. Tess and Hayden were both in attendance. So were the department heads. Bly was a big-name poet, and the room was packed. I sat in the middle of the small auditorium. My friend Chris had graduated the year before, and so now I attended reading solo. Twenty minutes into the reading, I felt sharp, stabbing pains in my abdomen. I looked at my digital watch. It was 8.56 p.m. I considered toughing it out, but the pains were too intense. My stomach was cramping. At the end of a poem, I stood and noisily made my way between people's knees and the back of the row of seats in front of me. Out in the hall, I called Mark. He had a car. I told him to meet me at Bird Library. I was too sick to take the bus home. I had used the same phone two years before to call my parents, but I had scrupulously avoided it since then. 
That night, I failed to honor superstition. Mark had to take a shower, 20 minutes at most, he said. I'll be the one cleaving to my abdomen, I tried to joke. Try to hurry. As I waited outside Bird, I began to tense up even more. Something was wrong, but I had no idea what it was. Finally, after 40 minutes, Mark pulled up. We drove off campus and up Euclid, where many students lived in run-down wooden houses. We turned the corner onto my street. Up at the end of the block, where Lila and I lived, were five black and whites with their lights going. The policemen were out running around, talking to people. I knew. Oh my God, oh my God, I started saying. Let me out, let me out. Mark was flustered. Let me park, let me go with you. No, let me out, now. He drove into a driveway, and I got out. I didn't wait for him. All the lights were on in our building. Our front door was open. I walked right in. Two uniformed policemen stopped me in the small foyer. This is a crime scene. You'll have to leave. I live here, I said. Is it Lila? What happened? Please. Involuntarily, I started peeling off the layers of my clothing and letting them fall on the floor my winter hat, my scarf, my gloves, jacket, and down vest. I was frantic. In our living room, there were more cops. One of the uniforms made a gesture to someone there and began, she says she lives, Alice, the plainclothes detective said. I recognized him instantly. Sergeant Clapper? When I said his name, the uniform ceased restraining me. It's Detective Clapper now, he said, smiling. What are you doing here? I live here, I said. Where's Lila? His face fell. I'm so sorry, he said. I noticed the policeman looking at me differently than before. Mark entered the apartment. I told the uniforms he was my boyfriend. Alice Siebold, one of them asked. I turned back to Clapper. Was she raped? Yes, he said, on the bed in the back bedroom. That's my room, I said. Is she okay? The female detective's in with her now. We need to have her examined at the hospital. You can drive with us in the car. She didn't struggle. I asked to see her. Clapper said, of course, and went back to inform Lila I was there. I stood there, feeling the eyes of the uniformed policeman on me. They knew my case because it had been one of the few convictions in a rape case in recent years. In their world, my case was famous. It had brought Clapper up in the ranks. Whoever worked on the case had benefited from it. I can't believe it. I can't. This can't be happening, I said over and over again to Mark. I don't remember what he said back to me. I was beginning to rally myself, to assume a control I didn't have. She doesn't want to see you, Clapper said upon his return. She's afraid she'll break down if she does. She'll be out in a few minutes, and you can ride with them to the hospital. I was hurt, but I understood. I waited. I told Mark that I would be in for the long haul, the hospital, the police, and that he should go home and make his place nice. The three of us would sleep there, Lila and I in the bed, he in his living room. The police made small talk. I started pacing. One of the uniforms gathered my clothes from the foyer and brought them over to the couch near me. Then Lila was coming out of the room. She was shaken. Her hair was disheveled but I saw no marks on her face. A short, dark-haired woman in uniform trailed her. She was wearing my robe, but it was belted with another tie. 
Her eyes were bottomless, lost. I couldn't have reached her then, no matter how hard I tried. I'm so sorry, I said. You'll be okay. You'll make it. I did, I said. We stood there looking at each other, both of us crying. Now we really are clones, I said. The female detective moved us along. Lila says you have another roommate. Oh, my God, Pat, I said. I had forgotten him until that moment. Do you know where he is? The library. Can someone get to him? I want to go with Lila. Then leave him some kind of note. We don't want him touching things, and he should stay somewhere else tonight until we can secure that back window. At first, I thought it was Pat playing a prank on me, Lila said. I came back from the bathroom, and the door to my bedroom was farther out from the wall than usual, like someone was standing behind it. So I pushed it in, and he pushed it out and back and forth until I got tired of it and said, Come on, Pat, and walked into the room. He threw me on the bed. We've got an exact time, the female detective said. She looked up at her digital clock. It was 8.56 p.m. When I felt sick, I said. What? The female detective looked mystified. I didn't know where to stand. I was not the victim. I was the victim's friend. The detective took Lila out to the car, and I hurriedly went into Pat's room. I did something nasty. I used the speculum to weigh down the note. I left it on his pillow because the rest of the room was a mess. I could be certain he'd see it there. Pat, Lila was raped. She is physically okay. Call Mark. You need to find somewhere else to stay tonight. I'm sorry to have to tell you this way. I left the light on in his room and looked at it. I decided not to care about Pat. I couldn't. He would be okay, bounce back. It was Lila now. We drove to the hospital in silence. I sat in the back with Lila, and we held hands. It's horrible, she said at one point. I feel filthy. All I want to do is shower. I squeezed her hand. I know, I said. We had to wait what seemed an interminable time in the emergency room. It was crowded, and because I've always assumed she had not struggled and had no open wounds, could sit upright and talk coherently, she was made to wait. Repeatedly, I went up to the woman in admissions and asked her why we had to wait. I sat with Lila and helped her fill out the insurance form. There had been none of this for me. I had been wheeled directly in, from ambulance gurney to examination room. Finally, they called her. We walked down the hall and found the room. The examination was long and plodding, and several times we had to wait while the man examining her was called into various other rooms. I held her hand as Mary Alice had held mine. Tears rolled down my face. Toward the end, Lila said, I want you to leave. She asked for the female detective. I went and got her and sat in the waiting room, shaking. My nightmares had never let Lila be raped. She and Mary Alice were safe. Lila was my clone, my friend, my sister. She had heard every part of my story and still loved me. She was the rest of the world, the pure half. But now she was with me. While I waited, I became convinced that I could have prevented Lila's rape. By coming home faster, by knowing instinctively that something was wrong, by never having asked her to be my friend in the first place. It didn't take me long before I thought and then said, 
It should have been me. I began to worry for Mary Alice. I shook, and I wrapped my arms around my shoulders and rocked back and forth in my seat. I felt nauseous. My whole world was turning over. Whatever else I'd had or known became eclipsed. There was no chance to escape, I realized. From now on, this would be it. My life and the lies of those around me. Rape. The female detective came out for me. Alice, she said, Lila is going with Detective Clapper down to the police station. She asked me to go home with you and get some clothes for her. I didn't know how to act. Even then, I was beginning to realize that Lila didn't know what to do with me around. There was Alice, her friend, and Alice, the successful rape victim. She needed one without the other, but that was impossible. The detective drove me home, and I unlocked the door. Pat still had yet to come home. The light I'd left on had been turned off by someone else. I plunged in. I remembered how Tree and Diane had brought me bad clothes, patched jeans, and no underwear. I wanted Lila to have comfort. I pulled down a large duffel from her closet and opened her drawers. I packed all her underwear, all her flannel gowns, slippers, socks, sweatpants, and loose shirts. I threw in a book and from her bed a stuffed animal and a pillow. I needed things, too. I knew already that Lila and I would never sleep in that house again. I walked to the back where my room was. The door was closed. I asked the detective if I could go in. I said a little prayer to no one and turned the knob. The room was cold because of the open window through which he'd climbed. I switched on the light near the door. My bed was stripped. I walked toward it. In the center was a small, fresh bloodstain. Nearby were other, smaller ones, like tears. She had come out of the shower, wrapped in a towel, gone to her bedroom, and played the door game, thinking it was Pat. Then the rapist had shoved her onto the bed on her stomach. She saw the clock. In the darkness, she saw him only for a few seconds. He blindfolded her with the tie from my robe, and then, turning her around on the bed, made her hold her hands in front of her chest in the prayer position, while he tied her wrists with bungee cords and a cat leash we kept in the front closet. This meant he had gone through the house while she was in the shower. He knew no one else was home. He made her get to her feet and walk back to my bedroom, where he made her lie down on my bed. That was where he'd raped her. He asked her where I was during the attack, somehow knew my name, somehow knew Pat would not be back until much later, at one point, he asked about the tip money I had on my dresser and took that. She did not struggle. She did as he said. He had her put on my robe and left her there, blindfolded. She started screaming, but the boys in the apartment above us were playing loud music. No one heard her or did anything if they had. She had to go through the front of the apartment, outside, and up the stairs, banging on their door until they answered. They held beers in their hands. They were smiling, expecting more friends. She asked them to untie her. They did, and to call the police. Lila would tell me all of this in the coming weeks. Now I tried hard not to look at the blood, at my bed, at the possessions he had gone through. My clothes in the closet spilled onto the floor, photos on my desk, my poems. I grabbed a flannel gown to match Lila's and some clothes off the floor. 
I wanted to take my old royal typewriter, but this would seem silly and selfish to everyone but me. I looked at it and looked at the bed. As I was turning to leave, a gust of wind from the window slammed the door shut. All the hope I had had of living a normal life had gone out of me. The detective and I drove to the public safety building. We took the elevator up to the third floor and exited into the familiar hallway outside the bulletproof glass that looked onto the police dispatcher station. The dispatcher pressed the button for the security door and we entered. Through there, a policeman said to the detective. We walked toward the back. The photographer was holding up his camera. Lila stood against a wall, holding a number in front of her chest. Hers, like mine, was written in bold magic marker on the back of an SPD envelope. Alice, the photographer said upon seeing me. I placed the duffel with our clothes in it on an empty desk. Remember me, he asked. I took evidence in your case in 81. Hello, I said. Lila remained against the wall. Two other policemen came forward. Wow, one said. It's great to meet you. We don't get the opportunity to see many victims after a conviction. Do you feel good about your case? I wanted to give these men a response. They deserved it. They usually saw only the side of a rape case that Lila, forgotten against the wall, represented. Fresh or weary victims. Yes, I said, aware that what was happening was all wrong, stunned by my sudden celebrity. You guys were great. I couldn't have asked for better, but I'm here for Lila. They realized the strangeness of it, too. But what wasn't strange? They posed her, and while they did, they talked to me. She doesn't really have any marks. I remember you were real messed up. Madison worked you over good. What about the wrists, I said. He tied her up. I wasn't tied up. But he had a knife, right? A policeman asked, anxious to review the details of my case. The photographer went up to Lila. Yeah, he said. Hold up your wrist in front. There, like that. Lila did as instructed, turned to the side, held her wrists up. Meanwhile, the uniform surrounded me and asked me questions, shook my hand, smiled. Then it was time to make phone calls. They set Lila and me up at a desk in the opposite corner. I sat on the top of it, and Lila sat in front of me in a chair. She told me the number of her parents, and I dialed. It was late now, but her father was still up. Mr. Reinhardt, I said, this is Alice, Lila's roommate. I'm going to put Lila on now. I handed her the phone. Daddy, she began. She was crying. She got it out and then handed the phone back to me. I can't believe this is happening, he said. She'll be okay, Mr. Reinhardt, I said, trying to reassure him. It happened to me, and I'm okay. Mr. Reinhardt knew about my case. Lila had shared it with her family. But you're not my daughter, he said. I'll kill the son of a bitch. I should have been prepared for this kind of anger at her attacker, but instead I felt it to be directed at me. I gave him Mark's phone number, told him we would be sleeping there that night, and that he should call with his flight arrival time. Mark had a car, I said. We'd meet him at the airport. Lila went with the police to fill out an affidavit. It was late now, and I sat on the metal desktop and thought about my parents. My mother was just now back working again after having a two-year increase in panic attacks. Now I would ruin that. Logic was beginning to leave, draining away from me.
With blame so heavy and nowhere to place it but the fleeing back of a rapist Lila could barely describe, I took it on. I dialed. My mother answered the phone. Late night calls meant only one thing to her. She waited at home for the news of my death. Mom, I said, this is Alice. My father picked up. Hi, Dad, I said. First, I need you to know that I'm okay. Oh, God, my mother said, anticipating me. There's no way to say it, but flat out, Lila was raped. Oh, Jesus. They asked a lot of questions. In answer, I said, I'm fine, on my bed. We don't know yet, inside the interrogation room. No weapon. Shut up. I don't want to hear that. This last one was a response to what they would say over and over again. Thank God it wasn't you. I called Mark. We saw him, he said. What? Pat called and I went over and we drove around looking for him. That's crazy. We didn't know what else to do, Mark said. We both want to kill the bastard. Pat can't see straight, he's so mad. How is he? Messed up. I dropped him off at a friend's house afterward. He wanted to stay with us. I listened to Mark's story. They both had a few shots, then drove up and down the nearby streets in the dark. Mark kept a crowbar in the car. Pat would scan the lawns and houses as Mark slowed down and then sped up. Finally, they heard yelling and then saw a man running out from between two houses. He ran onto the sidewalk and then, seeing Mark's car, turned quickly and headed back down the block, slowing his pace to a walk. Mark and Pat followed him. I can only imagine what they said and what they were planning. Pat was scared, Mark said. It might not have been him, I said. Did you ever think of that? But they say criminals sometimes stick around, Mark countered. Besides, the yelling and then the way he acted? You were following him, I said. Mark, you can't do anything. That's the deal. Beating someone up doesn't help anyone. Well, he turned around and charged the car. What? He just came at us, yelling and screaming. I almost shit my pants. Did you get a good look at him? Yeah, he said. I think so. It had to be him. He stood in the headlights, yelling at us. By the time Lila and I were driven to Mark's apartment on the other side of campus, I was too overwhelmed for further talk. I wanted to keep Lila safe from knowing about Mark and Pat's actions. I could understand it, but I didn't have much patience with it anymore. Violence only begat violence. Couldn't they see it left all the real work to the women, the comforting and the near impossible task of acceptance? Inside Mark's bedroom, Lila and I changed into our flannel gowns. I turned my back while she changed, and I promised I would guard the door. Don't let Mark in. I won't, I said. She got into bed. I'll be right back. I'll sleep on the outside edge so you'll be safe. What about the window, she asked. Mark has bolts on them. He grew up in the city, remember? Did you ever ask Craig to fix that back window? Her back was to me when she asked this. I felt the question and its attendant accusation like a knife at the base of my spine. Craig was our landlord. I'd gone upstairs to his apartment two weeks before to ask him to fix the lock on my window. Yes, I said. He never did. I slipped out of the room and consulted with Mark. The only bathroom was through the bedroom. I wanted all details taken care of, down to this. If Mark had to urinate in the middle of the night, I told him to use the sink in his kitchen. Back in the bedroom, I slipped into bed. Can I rub your back, I asked. 
Lila was tucked into a ball with her back facing me. I guess so. I did. Stop, she said. I just want to sleep. I want to wake up and have it be over. Can I hold you? I asked. No, she said. I know you want to take care of me, but you can't. I don't want to be touched. Not by you, not by anybody. I'll stay awake until you fall asleep. Do what you want, Alice, she said. Context of white supremacy. So that will be our one section for today, our irregular Wednesday broadcast, and then we will wrap Lucky up next Thursday back on our typical day. All done next Thursday, last session with Alice Siebold, Context of White Supremacy. Number to dial if folks have thoughts, observations, questions, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Email is until justice at gmail.com let's see uh, because I didn't even read ahead just I read some of the reviews and some of the reviews explain a little bit of the detail about what we just heard in chapter 12 but it'll be even better because we'll get that for next week so but I wish this was normal setup. Thursday, we have the two sessions and, oh, we could have all this together. Like, oh, oh, just wait until next week. Uh, okay. One person wrote in at the uh, conclusion of our broadcast last week. One of our investors in Virginia. Hope she is warm, has electricity, and is not out in all the snow and ugliness in the Commonwealth. Uh, she wrote in. She says, greetings, Gus. Two quick points. One. Siebold mentions that she wore red, white, and blue in the courtroom. Reminds me of white allegiance to the flag. What does that have to do with rape? Question. Excellent one. Number two. Siebold seems like a psychopath. As a writer, now that's interesting, the caveat, as a writer, um, certainly she has lots of homicidal rage moments in the text uh, and violent outbursts, right? Pole poem about lynching and castrating someone. So we did read The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Kevin Dutton, one decade of the book club. Hopefully we have read some good stuff. Uh, so we have more emails. That's one. Um, let me double check, see if we're not missing callers so we can add them in too. Make sure I get in two corrections as well. Correction number one, uh, Ramona Lofton 
also known as Sapphire, but whatever. Ramona Lofton, um, she wrote Push, which was adapted to Precious on the silver screen, but the novel is actually not titled Precious, Push, whatever. Garbage all the same. Uh, second correction, uh, the late Ken Thompson dismissed the charges in the Brownsville rape case with prejudice. Again, I am no scholar in jurisprudence, but dismissed with prejudice, although I did give the correct explanation, meaning no charges can ever, ever be brought again in that Brownsville rape case against those young, well, they're a little older now, uh, non-white males, black males in that case because of all the lying and corruption in the trial, but charges dismissed with prejudice. Strive for accuracy. All right, let's see if we have folks who have thoughts they would like to share. Uh, Dread138 uh, should be with us if you have thoughts on what we heard so far. Feel free. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, callers. Good evening, listeners. Can I be heard clearly? <clears throat> Yes, sir. All right. Um, the um, Dr. Tommy J. Curry opening, what um, program was that from? I believe that was the second time he was a guest on the program. Should be 2012. He's been a guest many times at this point, but I believe that was uh, second time around. Or actually, yeah, second time around. Oh, 2014. Now that I can the date. Okay. And the the Brownsville saw. I, I do. I once you started playing it, it, it did um, jog my memory, so to say. And I was like, I recall the incident, but then I, you know, just thinking about it, the initial out, outrage, but none of the um, contrition once it was proven to be false. And then, man. Um, wild thing that that poem I can't decide which is more disturb, disturbing between that and Sebo's um, poem, but um, yeah, and then just just notes I was making. One centimeter, and I said, as you know, what I'm saying being um, certain age, I remember the the effort to transit transition to the metric system around this time, but I found it curious as why she would hold on to this measure after writing his book in 99 and after that transition that failed. And then um, on page 248, and she's talking about her boyfriend, and then there was a color of his skin. I could focus on a pack, patch of white flesh and begin. Something about that whole paragraph just interested me. And then, like I said, 251, more rape jokes. And then um, also on 251, gossiping between whites. Sibo was damaged goods to, due to sex with a non-white male, not just a teenage phase, but a messaging, a padding of behavior um, for whites to hold on to. Um, everything else i just still um, processing. I'll meet my Lord. Thank you. Much obliged, sir. It is quite a bit to uh, process. So, yeah. Ponder take some moments see what you think uh, let's see other folks if you have commentary star 6-1 will nab you as well 
Uh, let's see. We'll nab some of our emails as we proceed. I cannot. I almost wish I had not peeked. Well, I didn't peek. I didn't even read ahead. I was read. I was doing my diligence, right? You're going to uh, facilitate a book club. You try to read reviews, see what people are saying, so you can be informed and have some interesting insight to offer. And yet one of the reviews, uh, no spoiler alert, they spilled some of the beans about, as I said, some of, wait till next week, wait till next week. Uh, one of the folks who wrote in a uh, different investor, uh, he writes number one, chapter 11, Madison sentenced the defense lawyer in the New York Times article stated that he was surprised the judge wasted a little time in coming to a decision. Judge Gorman died in 2009. William Mastin, the prosecutor, is quoted in the New York Times article regarding the current finding of innocence. Based on everything we had in front of us, he was the guy. Now, I mean, really? Really? Okay, you go with the pseudoscientific BS about the hair. Okay, whatever. But I mean, the lineup? Like, really? Even before we get to the lineup. You had police officers, just like what we just heard, celebrating and jumping up and down and saying that we got the guy. Alice Siebold hasn't even identified. She doesn't know who they're talking about. She hasn't seen this person at all, but they're celebrating. We got him. It's him. What do you mean? I, nothing. We're almost at the end of the book. We've read like 90% of it. There's nothing. In fact, Every time we have, and I think Lila's rapist is a nigra. We got to wait. Every time a nigra is accused of raping someone, the general logic seems to be any nigra will do. Any nigra male will do. You messed up the identification. You picked five this time, pick four next time whatever any nigra will do that is the overarching pattern when it comes to nigger raped white woman pff, grab any nigra and that's basically been their behavior white people's behavior for the entire duration of white supremacy racism continuing uh, the prosecutor we this is the guy Tim Musianti the fired movie producer of the aborted movie adaptation who raised suspicions regarding the book is an interesting character he is a disbarred lawyer convicted of fraud multiple times and has spent time in jail I saw that the white guy who started poking around and asking questions about all this like he is uh, I guess in some circles a disreputable white man gone to prison and all the rest of it but it would be someone like him maybe a white person who's not in good standing as they say who would look at this and ask questions and then end up unraveling the entire thing but even with that he went to prison and everything he didn't sound like Anthony Broadwater can't have any children nobody wants to hang out with me everybody looks at me side eye and everything doesn't want me around he didn't say that in fact he's got enough bankroll to uh, bankroll he's got enough bank to bankroll films like Lucky raping black man movie chapter 12 number one we are all prisoners but some of us are in cells with windows 
I couldn't see it for years, but if one of us had a window, it was Maria who was looking out. I got off scot-free. She'll wear the rape eternally. I found this passage fascinating. I don't think most rape victims would characterize themselves as not being permanently injured. In other words, scot-free. Is the author subliminally revealing something to us? Hmm. Interesting. That is a good question. Uh, she did say that, that she got off scot-free. Like, yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely one of the, I think a few, several folks have, have just pointed out little small things here and there that just would make me question a little bit. Like, really? Is she being truthful? I mean, it's big things, too. Lots of big things all throughout. But even some of the small things, like, I don't know, white woman. Uh, let's see. Chapter 13. Number one. There was where he'd raped her. He asked her where I was during the attack. Somehow knew my name. Siebold's actual rapist? Seems plausible. Another interesting question. Does anybody think that could be the case? That the person who raped Lila could be the same guy who raped uh, Seabold and since they were all focused on uh, Anthony Broadwater any old black person that they missed the correct rapist and now this guy is still out roaming around anybody think that could be one to think on number two we saw him he said we drove around looking for him he just came at us yelling and screaming it had to be him uh oh <laughs> echo echo looks what he said he says for race soldiers without a badge and even sometimes the race soldiers with a badge any random black dude will do echo 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 i thought i just heard that that's in in fact i might even get the sound clip and we wrap all this up next week uh what is it hurricane Denzel Washington, Reuben Hurricane Carter. Speaking of wrongfully convicted, uh, the great Denzel Washington. When the police stop him in Patterson, New Jersey, not that far from Pennsylvania, uh, and they pull him over, where were you at? White people got killed. Was it you? He says, are you looking for the correct person or any Negro will do? Psh, you already know any Negro will do. Uh, let's see, number three. The police had a theory that Lila might have been raped. Oh, we didn't get that far. We didn't get that far. Do, 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 do. Stop right there. We will get there for next week. Whew. Rick James will be back next week. Uh, let's see. Make sure we miss folks who had any thoughts they wanted to get in. Then I can share some of my notes as well. Right on. Star 6-1 for folks listening in. If you all have thoughts to share, I'll share some of my notes and then kind of keep an eye if folks have commentary observations to offer. Let's see. Mm -mm. All right. So going back to the trial. I got too far. Okay. Uh, wow. Chapter 11 is so long. Um, Okay, all the way back to the trial. Bang. 
Uh, I think someone way back when we started all this out, especially for people who've read The Lovely Bones or watched the movie uh, The Lovely Bones, that book is so much more about the white parents' response to this white girl being raped and killed, their white daughter. Uh, and people were saying, is this Alice Siebel's, this book, her fictional account of her hunger, uh, wanting her mom to be come to court, wanting her dad to be there and be attentive and all the rest of it. Maybe that's what this is, you know, her being so disgruntled, not getting enough attention from her parents uh, over the years. And she's upset about that. Right. Uh, where she says, my father's waiting outside. I said, this fact didn't seem real to me far away in the hall outside. He was reading Latin. I hadn't thought of him since entering the courtroom. I couldn't. I thought that was important too, going to that whole theory that's throughout the text. Parents, not, or even her dad didn't, he was seeming like he was skeptical of the account, right? Like he dropped the knife and you didn't fight back and blah, 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 and all the rest of it. They're, like I said from last week, they don't really want to go to court. Like, I got my trip to Spain. I'm trying to do other things. I don't want to be hanging out in the courtroom with you about all this. Uh, let's see. Oh, the exchange right here. Okay. So, previously, they had made it a point. We don't really even have any other black people in the courtroom. So if it's a black person who did it, bang, it's got to be this guy because he's the only black person present. Her attorney comes back on the redirect. He says, uh, could you give the judge an idea of how many young black men you would see on a daily average in your travels or class or dormitory or at all? Now, I've been saying consistently she is very explicit when she encounters black people. When she saw the black people out on the corner close to Philadelphia going to get her sister. Oh, my God. Animals. Uh, right. She's been very explicit. See a black person. That's my rapist. Uh, she doesn't do that with white people. I seriously doubt in all when she's talking about all the different dorms that she stayed in with the freaks and lesbians and everything else. She did not talk about a lot of black people being present, but pause all that. Pause all that. Let's see. There is a news uh, or in the New York Times. Make sure I get the correct report here. Here we go. The New York Times. I went back and read some of the first reports that came out when I first heard about all this back at the beginning of December. Number one, it was said last week in this book that Anthony Broadwater had a criminal record. That is a lie. He does not. That's in many, many newspaper reports. Strive for accuracy. That's why I said when it's so many things that are not accurate or suspicious or questionable in a text on top of the exoneration, like until proven otherwise, this is a gigantic racist lie that they were about to bankroll with a whole film to compound the lie. Anyway, the New York Times report. <clears throat> Anthony Broadwater was convicted of raping Alice Siebold in the case unraveled. That's an interesting term, too. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to give a little teaspoon from the Marine Corps. And I think that's important, too. You can lie and keep saying that Anthony Broadwater had a record. You cannot include not only did he not have a record. This is a veteran, a U.S. Marine that we're talking about that gets left out totally but whatever New York Times from Marine Corps to a police lineup Anthony James Broadwater was born in Syracuse the fourth of six boys and lived for a while near Syracuse University where his father worked as a janitor maybe Alice Siebold saw him 
he rarely set foot on campus saying he felt that it was off limits to him and other young black locals. Seabold said she saw a number of black people. Let's come back and see what she says. How many black people did you see on average in your travels class dormitory? A lot. More than 50 or less? I said that it was more. The whole thing made me uncomfortable separating the students I knew by their race, which she has done in this book every time when she gets explicit about identifying non-white people. Only identifying white people really in their proximity to the rapist the defense attorneys and the white guy that was standing next to Anthony Broadwater, presumably that day back uh, in, would that be October when she allegedly, Oh, there's the rapist standing next to some shady white guy. Remember that? And he's got to be shady too. That's another one. She'd be in the word God. Uh, but I'm going to go back to the New York times report. Let's continue. So Syracuse, he didn't even go there, felt it was off limits. And I just want to contrast that because I too, uh, one, I've been to the campus of Syracuse, too. I live in a city where there is a large, well, <laughs> Syracuse is private, but whatever, large university. UW is public, but I mean, let's take advantage. Go to the library. Come on campus. Do some research. That's the idea. And pretty much all of the major universities where I visited the city where they are, that's the attitude. Go to the university, take your children to the university and they will have great parks and museums and things and all kinds of resources. Come hang out. Your tax dollars are here. Come hang out. Nah. And his father works there. That's like double like, geez, you have a family member, an immediate family member, someone who's in the same house, who's a faculty or staff member here. Like, oh, my gosh, how are you not welcome? Oh. Racism, white supremacy, step on campus, then you're a rapist. Dad, probably a rapist, too. Let's see. He continues. Instead of going to Syracuse, he spent his time at a community recreation center and the local boys and girls club. How about that? That's a fostering training ground for black rapists. When he was about five years old, his mother died of pneumonia. It was he and his brother Wade who discovered her body on the couch in their living room. Known as Tony, Anthony Broadwater was outgoing and rambunctious, often tussling with his siblings. Wade Broadwater recalled how his brother could get caught up in, an entertain in entertaining a crowd and was once stopped for letting kids ride on the roof of his car. While the police who patrolled the neighborhood were familiar with the brothers, Anthony Broadwater had never been accused of anything serious. A skilled wrestler at Henninger High School, he dropped out around 17 and was intrigued when a Marine Corps recruiter said he could be on a flight to California within days. I wanted to see the world and try to better myself. Typical rapist behavior. Stationed at 29 Palms and Camp Pendleton, he ended up with a cyst on his wrist. He was just discharged and received disability for the injury. He returned to Syracuse where his father was ill with stomach cancer and eventually took a job installing phones for a telecommunications company. On October 5, 1981, he and a friend drove over to Marshall Street, a stretch of restaurants and shops that had long served as a gathering place for college students. 
while his friend was inside a store, Mr. Broadwater recognized a police officer from his younger days. Later in court, the officer and Mr. Broadwater would each remember calling out to each other, don't I know you? I'm just going to pause right there and leave it at that. Now, one, if the officer said this in court, because they said they both said this in court, wow, that should have been included in the book. She had the audacity to say that the prosecuting attorneys were so helpful and gave her resources. That should have been included. Like, wow, he said he was talking to the officer. Apparently, the officer said, oh, yeah. We both recognized one another. They didn't include the officer, recognized him as a Negro rapist, but wow. Oh, <laughs> the disgust of this case is just endless of this book and the lies and leaving out information and all the rest of it. But I mean, it is disgusting on so many levels. Uh, I'll stop there. You can read the New York Times report uh, if you like get more info. Uh, let's see. Okay, people you see. The whole commentary about uh Detective Murphy or Officer Murphy been in the business for thirty years. You are the best rape witness I've ever seen on the stand I don't even believe this there's so much questionable uh, about the reporting and what have you that oh my god you're the best and that tends to be a staple of white supremacy racism you can't just be that you did a good job you were solid you were the best ever in the history of life to get on the stand to convict a negro rapist I even had a pause at that like really I mean how many Negras have been convicted for raping a white woman? I mean, we don't even have time. Like, this is not difficult. Let's see. Let's see. It had been a long, good day for John Murphy. Uh, this is after they get the conviction. My father confided on the airplane. Murphy could really pack the drinks away, but who could blame him? He was heady, celebratory, off to see his Alice, just more white debauchery and drinking, drinking, drink. How much drinking is kind of the, the second theme of the book, alcohol and particularly underage alcohol consumption and alcohol abuse. It's really abuse because it's not like let's just have one drink. Let's see, next. Mm -mm -mm. Mm -mm -mm. They wrote me to inform me they were conducting a pre-sentence investigation of a young man who was recently found guilty after trial of rape first degree, sodomy first degree, and other related charges. These charges, letter said, stem from an incident in which you were the victim. They wrote to inquire if I had any input on the sentencing. I recommend maximum sentence allowable under the law and quote us in Madison calling me the worst bitch. Now, when did he allegedly say that? Is that something he said during the attack? Is that something he, that he said in court? Like, 
I knew Syracuse had been voted the seventh best city to live that year, and I pointedly stated that having men like Madison on the streets wouldn't bolster this reputation. Hmm. I submit having lying white women like Alice Siebold, that impugns the reputation of any town, institution, da da da, ellipsis. Uh, 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 uh. Let's see. She can say victim and nobody will fuss at her. You say victim of white supremacy and everyone, even a lot of non-white people. Oh my gosh, I'm not a victim. Stop calling yourself a victim. Yeah, yeah. We're not. I'm not even. I won't speak for you all. I am not convinced she is a victim of anything. Uh, let's see. Next chapter. the debauchery in this book oh my lord uh so they get a new roommate pat lila alice siebold and pat uh from the anthropology department he was younger than we were by two years and only a sophomore lila and i discovered porn magazines in his room fetish publications like jugs and one that featured only nude obese women he paid the rent blah 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 lila and me uh, he showed Lila and me the speculum he had pilfered from a relative who was a gynecologist pause for J. Marion Sims terrorizing black females Alice Sebold couldn't write a book on him white people in general they don't want to write a book on him and his abuse of females toxic masculinity and its origins J. Marion Sims they don't want to do that just Anthony Broadwater uh, anyway so the debauchery like I said the range of debauchery right that we've got in the book we got the keg parties we got 40 year olds hanging out with young women Woody Allen style Jeffrey Epstein we got bondage S&M snorting cocaine get some alcohol I mean the speculum we got it all the pornographic like we got it all and then we want to go out and these no count raping black males and they are debauchery we kill them yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, let's see. I felt a strong give me another Woody Allen when she goes on uh, talking about these different white guys that she's talking to, Mark and uh, Jamie from before, and how sophisticated they are, and where they live at in New York, and hanging out in Manhattan, the village. This is New York City, uh, and all this other stuff. Uh, it reminded me of Woody Allen. Um, yeah, Woody Allen, the name dropping and just being so immersed in white culture and knowing other authors and bits of white supremacy culture that white people like more refined white people like, oh, this is the type of wine you should like and these authors and this symphony, that type of thing. She even mentions Philip Glass. <laughs> old Negro Gus T. I know who Philip Glass is, composer. Why do I know Philip Glass? They just did the tacky remake of Candyman. Philip Glass did the score for the Candyman first time around, which that would be another raping Negro attacking the white woman. Yeah, yeah. Recurring in white supremacy culture. Uh, the jokes again. I think uh, Dread138 mentioned that already when I told my jokes. Why doesn't a rape trial rate a mention on ye old resume? Again, I have known sex abuse victims. 
not a one not that they all behave the same but no one I know is out turning their rape into slapstick maybe that's just an Alice Seabold thing let's see when she gave the line about white people gossiping like oh you with the rape girl I didn't believe it unless at this point they had the trial and everything so they know it's a nig the public knows that this is a nigra rapist unless it's, mud shark mud shark she's been raped by nigra soil if that's what it is I, okay yeah that I can get with what I mean if it's just she's been I mean they do gang rapes and all I mean yeah what's the big deal lots of rapes we already talked about that gang rapes all that Woody Allen uh, let's see Mark was a natural feminist I have no idea what that means if it's support of white women or something in that realm I guess but they would have to detail it to me can't even begin to understand next all right lucky 13 chapter 13 Lila was at home studying for the kind of killer test even that language in the system of white supremacy so much violence is demanded in this system if you're only going to have a tiny minority of the population dominate the entire globe of mostly non-white people Dr. Welsing said that's perpetual violence uh, even deception like this book to mistreat someone is a form of violence uh, white supremacy the culture requires a comfort an enjoyment of violence that's why so much of the so many of the racist jokes are violence that's why so much of the entertainment is violence you have some uh, so-called romance novels and all the rest of in Rambo which comes up in the book uh, all of that is just and it's generally it's violence against non-white people but so yes yeah, she's not having a challenging test she's not having a hard test it's not a difficult test it's a killer test uh, and I thought someone said she writes like a psychopath hmm. as a poetry pager I'm no longer I no longer had to concern myself with I just thought that was interesting because I think I'd said before I don't know very many black people who have the leisure of going to a private institution for four years or more to major in poetry that is white power uh, let's see again the joking now you're not just joking about your rape your roommate your homie is allegedly raped and you don't wait a month you don't give it some time you come in minutes from the rape and you are ready. I got the one-liners ready. Now we really are cloned. Are you serious? I wouldn't want you around either if that's how you're going to behave. Like, yeah, beat it. Get out of here. You're getting on my nerves. Let's see. I do not believe this. That's all I can say. Uh, that she's at a movie theater and she through some sense of what is this clairvoyance 
that she gets some sort of nauseous feeling at the exact moment that the white woman on the other side of town is being raped in her bed? Are you kidding me? I do not believe that at all. I'm certain people might have those type of experiences and I've heard parents talk about what they can feel, uh, you know, when their child is in trouble and that sort of thing or twins, siblings, that sort of thing. I can feel my feather fellow white sisterhood when they are imperiled by Negro rapists. Get out of here. Uh, let's see. And see, now see, now we come right from there. Okay, she's confirmed like, oh, wow. We are united in Negro rape. I felt it at that exact moment. I should have leaped from the theater and came to, you know, whatever. She moves like literally like three sentences from there and says, I did something nasty, of course. Super freak. Super freak. Rick James will be back to round us out this week. Tone look was nice for one, but <laughs> Rick. James I used the speculum to weigh down the note I mean you couldn't find a book nothing else it had to be that and then that's got to be included in the book that's important for us as we weave through what happened to old Gregory Madison Anthony Broadwater that you used a speculum to weigh down the note that your white female room rape mate was raped by a nigra who might even never mind <laughs> like super freak it's not even believable like I said it's like are you serious it's not even believable let's see I don't know what a successful rape victim is lots of, of terms remember last week she said Broadwater was a power rapist which I highlighted as kind of suspicious not just a rapist he's not a, a revenge rapist he's a power rapist master rapist uh, let's, yeah, I don't know what a successful rape victim is. Put that in quotes. I feel like a lot of uh, 2022 feminists might even give a side eye, especially if someone like Augusti uh, said it. Like, what did you say, Coon? Uh, let's see. She gives all this information that the so-called rapist who Lila did not see, uh, he takes her to Alice's bedroom, bed to rape her. Somehow he knew her name, allegedly. He knew Pat would not be back until much later and asked about the tip money I had on my dresser and took that. Uh, now, at this point, we haven't got an identification. Was it a white person? Non-white person. But I mean, if this is true, this suggests somebody who has like intimate detail. I don't think Anthony Broadwater knows this much about a white woman's life. And I mean, this is like before Internet, everybody didn't have an Apple Watch and all the rest of it to just go and search somebody's name and check on social media and get all the dibs and look at their pictures and see, you know, what their schedule is. I, I seriously doubt. And Mr. Broadwater dropped out of high school. He didn't, you know, wasn't at Syracuse or UPenn, so this is not the most well-educated person. Like, I seriously doubt he or any other black person at 1983 
would be this informed about some white person and their entire schedule, tip jar, where they work at. And all. I mean, that just is not believable at all. If that is true, I would be looking at who has been in your house, which would probably be white people, regardless of all the black people that Alice Sebo says she sees on a regular basis. Who's been in your house? I think that's the way it goes normally. If they got all this information about schedules for your roommates and things. Oh, yeah. Give me a list. Last three months, maybe even six months. How many people have been here? I don't think Anthony Broadwater or any other niggers would be on that list, but whatever. Uh, so Lila gets raped. She escapes. She goes upstairs. None of her roommates heard anything because they're uh, partying. Now, again, we're supposed to be in an academic environment. They're not doing the Dr. Welsing. Let me do some reading. Enjoy some quiet time. Get my brain computer functioning. Nah. We're playing bing pong, uh, beer pong. Beastie Boys or whatever else that may be toned low because this was happening. Oh, that's too early. Beastie Boys, I was right the first time. Beastie Boys, right? This is early 1980s. Rick James, maybe. Uh, so she says she goes up and they're holding beers in their hands. They were smiling. Now, again, I said alcohol consumption, drugs. That's like second thing for the book rampant all the way throughout with everybody and underage drinking which would contribute to a lot of the debauchery and problems with sex abuse because people are doing things they wouldn't if they were thinking correctly if they were sober and then can't quite remember what they were doing and you're in kind of vulnerable position if you're a female like a whole lot of bad things can happen from that being intoxicated next uh, let's see. So they had beers in their hands, expecting more friends. She asked them to untie her and call the police. Uh, I thought it was important as well as the police officers. She says that the police, their careers advanced from this case, right? Uh, she goes up, Officer Clapp, he says, oh, hey, hey, it's detective now. You get enough niggers in greater confinement with convictions like, oh, yeah, you get a few more stars, you know, get a few more uh, maybe commas on my paycheck, bigger office. Do they rescind all of that if they find out sometime later? Like, whoops, you all contributed to pseudoscientific BS and a black male being locked up for 16 years incorrectly. And you probably no for you didn't even catch the rapist brilliant police work a plus white supremacy racism which is what I suspect all this is about anyway but I mean brilliant police work uh, but they advance in this so common this happens so many times you have people who have advanced their entire career off of an un I think that happened in the Central Park 5 rape case too and then whoops 40 million dollars later uh, we talked about the psychopathy uh, the psychopathic writing in all of this uh, Alice calls Lila's parents 
she's okay. I can't believe this is happening. Uh, I'll kill the son of a bitch. How does that happen consistently? And I've, I've pointed that out. Now, hey, that doesn't happen with black people. They don't get to write books like this where every other line somebody is talking about killing someone who perpetrated an act of racism against them. That is not allowed. It's only individuals classified as white uh, where they can come back and have all of this homicidal rage immediately or long term throughout the whole process. Remember her dad even uh, years at this point we got to the trial is talking about hey why, why are we allowed to chop off his hands and feet and all the rest of it. Let's see. Uh, so Lila's dad, he's talking about killing him, right? Son of a bitch, that's Welsing moment too. Then uh, Pat and the other white guys, just like what happened before, uh, any Negro will do. They go out and are beating up black guys. Remember that when it was Alice, allegedly who was raped, and the Sy- these weren't even the police; these were Syracuse security officers who went out and were just randomly beating up black people. The one uh, white security officer said allegedly that his niece or someone had been gang raped. Remember that was way back at the beginning. Now we come around this time and Pat says, we saw him same thing. Now, how do you know this is the guy you haven't talked to Lila? She hasn't seen a lineup mugshot. You don't have an artist description or rendering what the suspect looks like. How do you know this is the rapist? Oh, you know, he was running around. (laughs) He says, he says, Pat called and I went over and we drove around looking for him. We both want to kill the bastard. Pat can't see straight. He's so man. I mean, even that we know we saw the guy. But you're so mad you can't see straight. But we're sure we saw the guy. Who? Who are you talking? They continue. Uh, they both had a few shots. What did I say is the second theme of the book? Even can we name the people in this book who are teetotalers who don't drink? Even Alice Siebold's mom is a lush. Can we name the people who don't drink at all in the book who promote sobriety? Even the 15-year-old, remember, Father Bruniger, his son, alcoholic and doing narcotics and stabbing old women. Uh, Let's see. They both had a few shots, then drove up and down the nearby streets in the dark. Mark kept a crowbar in the car, but they don't explain why. Now, is he out jimmying locks? Why do you, does anybody here drive around with a crowbar? Is this for a weapon? Because it sounded like that's what it was for here. It was going to be a substitute nigger knocker. Pat would scan the lawns and houses as Mark slowed down and then sped up. Finally, they heard yelling and then saw a man running out from between two houses. He ran onto the sidewalk and then, seeing Mark's car, turned quickly and headed back down the block, slowing to pace slowing his pace to a walk Mark and Pat followed him I can only imagine what they said and what they were planning you don't have to imagine you've already seen this this is the second time you've detailed this in the book and I'm just reminding folks we've had all kinds of descriptions of white criminality in this book there's never been a posse to go hunt any individual classified as white regardless of the crime they committed 
we've had multiple posses, sometimes with a badge and sometimes not, out hunting black males exclusively. And this was about to be a movie in 2022. Hunting black males where they've already stated an intent to kill and they don't even know if they got the right person. Any Negro will do. Let's see. And then she has the audacity. This heifer. You shouldn't name call, but I mean, this book is so disgusting and dangerous and dishonest. Like, I was thinking today, like, should this bump Nutricide as the worst book of all time? And then I had to say, unfortunately, no, it can't because there are no misspellings in this book, at least none that I've caught. That book isn't even spelled correctly, so hanging on to the championship, unfortunately. But I mean, yeesh, this should at least, like, be kind of maybe uh, Isabel Wilkerson cased. Maybe there's a challenge for second worst book of all time because, like, wow. If it's not just let me write something that is in total support of white supremacy, racism, and bash black males, I have no idea what the value of this is because this is, like, horrendous. Uh, she comes back as though on some moral ground. Violence only begat violence. Didn't you write a poem about slicing off balls? and cutting out eyeballs and sodomizing with a knife. Wasn't that you? And then you went and read the poem at a competition publicly? Hypocrisy and racism. Like, this book is disgusting. Uh, Couldn't they see that it left all the real work to the women? And see, she only says this lying nonsense about violence begetting violence and pretending that she's upset about this when she is clearly not when the violence is against black males. She only says that to then get to her little wedge for white feminism because she's not concerned about black females or non-white females, period. Just to get that. But you're just dumping all the work on us white women. Whatever. I thought Murphy, I thought he did some work, right? You were just talking about him. I thought uh, at the time, Detective or Sergeant Clapper, I thought they did some work too. No, it was just get out of here. She comes back. Now, I mean, also, you want to talk about debauchery. Now, she can list this as a moment of pride at her detail for taking care of her friend, Lila, who had been raped allegedly that she tells Mark, hey, the only bathroom you have to walk through the bedroom and you are not going to be messing up another rape victims or us rape victims tonight. So you go piss in the sink. Do what? The debauchery. No ends, man. Uh, Let's see. Uh, This scene here. Where now she's talking about this as though this is a moment of comfort uh, where she's in bed with Lila and she says, uh, make sure I get it. Lila. Oh, she says, can I rub your back? I asked Lila was tucked into a ball with her back facing me. I guess so. I did stop. She said, I just want to sleep. I want to wake up and have it be over. Uh, I am not qualified in any stretch of the imagination to. 
comfort, counsel, sex abuse victims, male or female. Not at all. I don't have any experience doing that. I'm not trained. None whatsoever. Just a little bit of logic that I have and the few sex abuse victims uh, that I have had contact with in my life. A lot of those folks end up being very sensitive about being touched, especially if it's close to when the traumatic event happened, like in time. Even some of them, even as time goes on over years, they're still very sensitive about being touched. I don't know if I would be giving out back rubs and things to someone like minutes after they've been raped. It sounded way too sensual, way too, we got all this talk about lesbian sex and everything. It just sounded anti-sexual. Like, what are you doing? I was thinking the exact same thing. You're making jokes about rape and now you're coming with this lesbian, less cuddling, like get away from me. That's what I was thinking the whole time. Like, who is this chick? Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, and that's as far as we got. So I stopped it. <sighs> Cannot wait until next week, man. Rick James will be back in full effect. Uh, let me pause. Uh, see if folks have other thoughts that they want to get in on the section of reading that we got this week. Again, we'll be back normal uh, setup for next week. Uh, all the switchboard just lit up while I was doing my. I generally prefer to let other folks talk first, and then I give my notes so that I don't take you all speaking points. But uh, we'll do it the opposite way this week. It'll be fun. Uh, let's see. So everybody who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? Be in Santa Rosa, yes, sir. Uh, how you guys doing today? Um, a couple of things stood out to me. Uh, number one was uh, was uh, when um, uh, uh, is, is is how you say it. Um, is, does this, the word virgin, um, it's the first time I ever cringed when I heard that word. I, I wonder, does that make you guys feel the same way? Um, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, the, the guy breaking in and, and raping her friend, uh, and, and then the two friends went out and looking for a guy who uh who who they didn't even get a description of. And and at one point you even said it. he said he couldn't see straight. Like, how are you gonna find a guy if you can't even see straight? Uh and then he has a crowbar in the back of his car. I don't know if I'm tripping, but I'm thinking he probably used the crowbar to get in through the back window unless the back window was open. Um Everybody getting a promotion who who uh in in the in the um in a police station who has something to do with this case got a promotion. Uh it's, it's a lot of tackiness. But I, I really wanna know, like, did do anybody else feel uh 
weird when whenever they use the word virgin. And that's all. Much obliged to be in Santa Rosa. I've never had any sort of feelings uh, or the term virgin or any of its derivatives have never like had an impact uh, on me in terms of when somebody used them verbally or in writing. But in this book, yes, I have the exact same response uh, because, I, as I said, I feel like it's been weaponized. That's just a major trope of white supremacy racism, the virginal chaste, pure, innocent, white woman. That's what I feel like it's being weaponized to convey all of that every time. Uh, and I'm, that's what I mean, the tackiness of it. That's every day. Is you're just beat over the head with that. The innocent, pure white woman, the innocent, pure white people, the innocent, pure white woman, and especially with white women, innocent, fairness and purity and all the rest of it. Snow white and all the rest of it. So absolutely. And as I said, I don't even believe it because of the botch, the debauchery. That's why it especially these are really nasty tastes like nauseous tastes every time she uses it because it's all of that. And then the I don't even believe you if you're saying virgin, meaning I had not engaged in sexual intercourse before this. I think you're lying about that, too. But <laughs> whatever. Lots of lies here, you know, definitely not. But. I'm sorry. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, I'm not laughing because, you know, I'm just, I'm laughing. I'm disgusted. I'm I'm really disgusted by this book. I was going to ask you to send over the, uh, for you to email me the, uh, the book, but I was like, nah, I don't want nothing to do with that. So disgusting. It's pretty gross. Um, <laughs> as is the system of white supremacy, but yeah. Uh, mine is well highlighted. I will say that uh, other folks dialed in with commentary should be with us. Can I be heard? Z's mom also in California. Greetings, everyone. Greetings, guys. Um, I had a couple notes. So the first thing I had was um, I was agreeing with you. I thought it was really interesting that she said she ran into 50 or so black people, I think was what she said, a day. Um, I hope I'm, I got that correctly. I, I found that to be really shocking because there's no, there's only, I think at one point, one or two black people that are mentioned, at least in terms of like the people within her college that she interacts with throughout the book. But there's a lot of people, white people that she interacts with that she has as characters in this book. So I thought it was very interesting that she said that. And it seems to be very obviously a lie. And I think it's just really interesting because when Alice Siebold wrote her, you know, her little apology, um, she said, you know, that she was sorry about the circumstances, but that she had no, you know, it was out of her control or something. And that they're both victims, which I think is interesting because, the whole defense's case is based on, you know, Alice Feeble not being able to discern the different features of black males. So therefore, if she's saying that she is constantly around black people and seeing them, she's lying, right? And so that is obviously her intentionally trying to harm um, Anthony Broadwater, which I thought was interesting. 
Um, another thing was that this book has a really, I think you guys were saying it earlier, idealistic and like perception of white women as these universally innocent creatures who just have no ill intentions. Um, and then for the white men, it seems like they're constantly engaging in these disgusting behaviors, whether it be like sexually or violent. And yet it's only seen as them being quirky or overly emotional. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and a lot of the book or the um, book reminds me of another book. It's called, um, it's about carceral feminism. It's by um, someone named Ayer Gruber, a woman. And it's about how, um, like, the Me Too movement and a lot of this white feminism is basically based on, you know, putting black males in prison based on this idea of white women being innocent and these these innocent virgins that need to be protected, which is something that is talked a lot, a lot about on the cows, obviously. Um, but I just thought it was really interesting how violent, she talks about whatever type of revenge she wants to enact on her rapist. I just found that to be very interesting. And something that I also think is just so weird to me is that she doesn't have any tone in her voice. She's so monotone. So you don't even understand, like, you don't understand if she's being sarcastic in one instant, if she's being serious, if she's feeling any sort of, sort of emotion, because the way she's reading it is like she has no emotion in her voice whatsoever. And I found that to almost make me kind of uncomfortable because I don't understand what she's feeling when she's saying these things. Um, and the last thing I wanted to say was that I thought it was, like I think you guys were talking about it earlier, it, it does seem like Lila's or, or her friend's rapist is probably somebody they know. It may even be those friends who went to go... Um, find the actual rapist because it seems that that person knew their schedule, knew where her tip money was and knew to come in at a time um, when uh, Alice wasn't there. It just all seems very suspicious. Um, and I think that's all I have to say for now. Hmm. Aya Gruber, the feminist war on crime. Have to check that one out. That, uh, Sounds in line with what I was saying about white women being at the head of the uh, prison to, or is it school to prison pipeline? Tacky metaphor. Aya Gruber. Have to check that one out. Hmm. Much obliged, uh, Z's mom. But yeah, the white, innocent, pure, chaste white woman, totally. And I think several folks uh, have written in have called in, have made that point that that is another component of white supremacy, racism and uh, distortion lying in this book. Most of the white women who are raped are not raped by Anthony Broadwaters, Gus the Renegades, if you want to take it all the way back to Birth of a Nation, uh, the uh, D.W. Griffith one, not Nate Parker, although he was accused too. So, eh. um, But that's even Bill Cosby. That's not most of the folks. Most of the people where there is a rape as she said, it's someone you know. Most of the time, it is not some nigger with a crowbar breaking in through your back door or window or whatever else. And I mean, for this crime, like, like I said, it would be everybody in the house. Write down everybody that you've had at this residence. Everybody that you've had over, that you talked to, 
this for sure sounds like an inside job and I think even someone said the same thing before like is this one of the friends he did have that crowbar is that how he got in the back window? I mean real that's what it would be not let's just go out and find whoever the closest black male is to the crime and arrest them like really really and college campuses are where so much rape happens like so it's a very common thing so to to say that it's always some outsider instead of someone who's actually in the college is very interesting preach 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 lots of uh distortion uh in this here text um let's see and other folks who had a hand up if we missed you completely can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, guys. Greetings, callers and listeners. Uh, <clears throat> I joined in late um, this, this um, study, but I did catch her saying that uh, a lot of people benefited from um, the trial. And I'm like, oh, that's um, very um, common, the system of race and white supremacy. Um, many white people benefiting from the torture of uh, black people, from the imprisonment of black people. And I'm sure it benefited long-term. It sounded like long-term as well, because um, I think she was talking about maybe the um, the, the trial lawyer, how he, he, he that probably got him a lot of um, um, acclaim and reputation. He was probably able to get more clients because of it or something like that. Um, but yeah, really um, tragic. Oh yeah, and this book is, uh, it started off Chapter one, very, very grotesque. And I think now we're in chapter 11 or 12, but um, still um, very, very grotesque. This um, Alice Siebold, um she's quite the um, suspected racist. And um, hearing um, just the, the logic and how this probably didn't even happen um, is um, really telling. And it, it brings a thought to mind. I wonder how many... Um, Black people will get Alice Siebold, um, 2022. Um, how many um, black people will be um, lied on and said that we raped a white person this year because we um, do not understand racism yet, and we are still um, being amongst these people and and in ways that are not constructive. And I, I'll meet my lines. advancing their careers at the expense of black people uh, and unjustly so like I mean I mean maybe you could justify this if Mr. Broadwater had actually committed this crime or any crime but I mean woof and for this sort of thing to happen over and over and over uh, where black uh, excuse me white people because we heard that with uh Geronimo Pratt, the same thing uh, that the folks who participated in his trial, uh, and I mean that you want to talk about willful, super deliberate all the way around in concealing information and lying and to lock somebody up just because you don't like them working against the racism, white supremacy. Same thing. The judge and prosecutor and what have you. Hey, they came up. We got a Negro locked up and a Black Panther. That's like a two for one. Boom, boom, boom. Then find out 30 years later. Whoops. Man, we lied and did all that. Oh, well. What can you do? 
system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, then you have other folks commentary that they wanted to make sure that they get in. I had a question. Um, this is Dee's mom again. Speaking of people, I guess, uh, being compensated from the um, tragic, like what basically what was done to Anthony Broadwater, does Alice Siebold or has there been any sort of petition or work to get the um, money that she got from this book to somehow be given to him or at least be somehow taken from her? I've not heard of that sort of petition. Uh, I know they, uh, not Alice Siebold, but supporters of Anthony Broadwater. And I mean, even that, like Alice Siebold, like you're a powerful white woman. You've, you know, our best selling author. You've been on television. She was on Oprah. Win Man, if we had a staff and a budget, that is one thing. Like I would put down a few nickels. Like I would purchase when Alice Siebold was a guest on Oprah Winfrey like VGQ for whatever Oprah Winfrey said that's not really why I'd want to watch it but I mean just oh my god <laughs> like the number of interviews and reports and things that she did well in advance of all of this coming out and going out and oh you poor thing and your rape and man, 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 all the oh I, that is one I would pay for if anyone has the ability and you know you came up you budgeted right and had uh, hand sanitizer that you've been selling at marked up prices for two years like if you get your hands on Alice Siebold's visit to Oprah Winfrey let us know but that's what I'm saying like she has so many connects like she could hook it up like psh, lucky the trashy book that we're almost finished reading sold a million copies Even if you get one penny per book, if you get a half a cent per book, let me cut Mr. Broadwater a check for a half million dollars. This is in no way compensation for any, even if you had to be a registered sex offender for 16 years, I don't think a half million dollars is compensation for that. But no, I've not seen any sort of petition. I didn't see her reach out to Oprah Winfrey. Come on, Harpo, let's hook it up. We got to get a, you know, an Instagram account and we go hook up Anthony Broadwater. Like, whew, he is going to be balling. He and his whole family, like we got an around the world trip for them and they don't have to worry about COVID test kits and masks. And uh, I'm hooking him up with a Bentley right now and he's going to have the flyest Rick James suit in the world. And I mean, hook it up. No, I haven't heard anything like that. He did get a GoFundMe page and they said they've got like, I don't know, $200,000. I'll even point to that because like, man, I've seen white people talk about who coming up being compensated for brutalizing black people. I have seen white killers get more money than the last figure that I saw for Anthony Broadwater. He got over $100,000, but I mean... I have seen white people who there's no suspicion. They killed a black person and white people went hard to invest in them. Make sure they have the best defense possible and are comfortable during the trial. I didn't see that for Anthony Broadwater. Black male privilege, what they what they say. 
Let's see. Any other folks with commentary that they want to make sure that they get in? Yes, over $500,000 was donated to Darren Wilson crowdfunding. Um, so, and they had a 300 or $300,000 goal. So you're very accurate. Mr. Broadwater has not garnered $300,000, not even close. And that's what I mean. Like, Hey, you know, Oprah Winfrey blow this up. We're going to make up for this. My bad. Maybe the rest of you no count black males or no count Nate Parker and Bill Cosby and R. Kelly and Clarence Thomas and all the rest of you. But at least Anthony Broadwater, veteran Anthony Broadwater. We're going to look out for you. Make this right. Nope. See why folks see if they have any other questions, comments that they would like to share. Feel like I did make the correct choice because if we played that other segment, today either we would be over we would be super overtime because by the time it finishes it would be well after uh, the end of the hour and then we'd have no time to comment so next week we can relax and it's lengthy I think it's almost an hour of narration that we have left so we will wrap up proper next week Uh, incidentally I also wanted to make sure I got in a word on uh, what is it Oh, Ramona Lofton uh, victims guaranteed qualified but I mean why this even just reading this book has like been another painful reminder like I Gus T have greatly underestimated the component the strength really the importance of black misandry specifically violence against and targeting of black males uh, in the system of racism white supremacy but wow reading this book painful reminder very important element of white supremacy racism and in lots of ways we finish this out next week and even the response after this was all over the black misandry just continues we'll hear more about that next week but that poem from uh, Ramona Lofton titled Wild Thing Henry in Chicago alerted us to that last week and saying you know that's what she was famous for uh, before uh, Push, uh, also known as uh, Precious. We were blessed to have that in the world, which also features raping black males. Um, that poem, I think Dread 138 said he didn't know which was worse. I don't either. There are many different components that I could talk about, but I mean, I have not located a whoops, my bad, from Ramona Lofton. Like, if I am like naming minors and charging them with this crime that they went out and did this and raped this white woman and all the rest of it and then whoops they didn't do any of this where is I mean my bad you don't have to write a movie you don't have to write a book you don't have to write another poem my bad I couldn't even find that in fact once it became known that the Central Park Five were innocent, in my view, she should have been persona non grata. I don't need to see. Per- in fact, I wish I had known about this poem. 
I would have never even attempted to watch the first 45 minutes of Precious, which again made me want to vomit because of the anti-blackness. Nobody who was involved with that project can have anything but contempt and disgust for black people. But I would have never watched that project. I would have already known this person produces anti-black material. I don't even have an apology. Not that I'm begging for one for the Central Park Five, even in the acknowledgement. I was like spectacular wrong. And with minors, spectacular wrong. Even with the basic facts, if they had have done all this, she wrote that it was an army of 40, 50 black people. It was rumored to be five black children, not 40, not 20, just five. That's why they call it the Central Park Five. You can't even get that correct. And then the metaphor that she hung on it, it was a black wall of sin. Now you just take what we're reading, Alice Sebold, and put that up. So we got white virgin, pure, innocent, fair, chaste, virgin, and then a wall of black sin. And she's talking about children. She says, uh, and then she's talking about these children who want to, she says repeatedly, they're talking about their mom and frustrated for whatever reason, she won't get them some Jordans or whatever. I'll kill that bitch. Which of the Central Park Five killed their own mother? Did I miss that? Is that included in the Netflix series? I don't remember hearing that. We've done programs about the Central Park Five. They killed their own parent, really? And the last part that I get about that abomination of a poem, that poem sounded every bit like the description we heard at the beginning of Alice Seabold's Lucky when she gets to the part where the black children, which is, she said it was children who raped her in in Lucky. So, Uh, but it sounds exactly, I mean, like fraudulently the same. And I mean, both of these are wrong, so maybe they should sound like that, but they both have the black males Ooh, these white breasts oh these white breasts white nipples I said in Alice Ebo's book like she spent the whole book talking about how she hates her pale skin and people teased her for her melanin deficient complexion Mark Twain she spent the whole book she even said it this week she hated her body that's what motivated her to get on that bike with Richard Simmons and pedal away those 15 pounds but the black rapist oh white breasts Mm, really and you both include that in your works that are both wrong about raping black males I guess that's another black with black males no logic no accuracy no truth none of it matters any Negro will do and hey since any Negro will do you don't really have to be accurate you can just make up and say whatever you want black male privilege I guess if anybody did locate an apology from Mamona Lofton or if it doesn't even have to be an apology an acknowledgement of wow I was spectacularly wrong and contributed to white supremacy racism and black misandry specifically with 
children I would love to read it but I haven't found that at least Alice Siebold gave a lame apology if that means anything uh, any other thoughts uh, the poem again much obliged Henry in Chicago not that I need to read that poem wild thing again but come on that's another one that's how she said she got known like come up off of black males is that what to do come up off, come up off of the black male rapist uh, any other comments folks want to make sure they get in maybe her <clears throat> yes sir Yes, Green. Uh, once again, just want to echo your thoughts. I was as you were reading. I, I actually, like I said, you um, beat me to the punch when I said Pat was a young J. Marion Sims, and the symbolism of using the speculum to notify Pat of Lyle's rape. And then I thought about the the Rambo in the movie the movie theater. If you're a white person and you're not dis, uh, demonstrating sufficient de- demonstrate dedication. Other races will remind you, and the, the debauchery of the party, the strange white bodies in your home. Who's to say that they didn't get information while in your apartment? And just the, the last thing, um, uh, George Zimmerman, Kyle Rittenhouse. The list is, is extensive of, uh, of financial support for um, races or suspected races, and then just to remind everybody. That um, one of the anagrams of you um, was produced for Greg, Greg Mag, Greg, Gregory Madison was misandry. Now I'll meet my line. Good night. Mm. Much obliged. I said that. Thank you all for reminding me. Endogamy. There were some really interesting words that came out of there. He, I think he was one of the ones who did the report on that because he called endogamy and misandry. That's right. That's right. Gore, they were some really uh, significant words that came out from that list. Uh, Much obliged, Dread138. Uh, I'm so glad y'all reminded me because that was uh, several things that I had uh, forgotten uh, that you all had pointed out. I don't know how I missed that. One about the Rambo uh, scene where they went to the movie. Uh, where I guess that's this one white man who goes and kills. I guess I need to watch Ram. I'm aware of the whole series. Maybe made, made it, but I, I guess it's starting. He's going and killing a lot of non-white people, and they go and just think that this is so funny. And again, toxic white masculinity to have one white man just go. What I say is a killer exam. That's the culture of white supremacy racism to just have one white man go and kill lots and lots and lots of non-white people and have this set in Vietnam in the 1980s, which really you're only like not even a decade removed from the so-called Vietnam conflict where they killed like a million non-white people and they still just got to make movies about killing even more non-white people. And they go watch this and giggle like it's funny. And then you have a race soldier in the back who gets mad like he's, you know, not showing proper reverence for white killers. We should go and watch. We played, my God, we're in the pocket. We had Neely Fuller Jr. at the beginning talking about Rocky, right? How does Sylvester Stallone get two mentions in the program? We're not even talking, we're not talking about Rocky. And then Rambo pops. Rocky's another one where he's always going to beat up some black dude, right? Same thing. Violence against non-white people. That's in the entertainment. That's in the books. That's everywhere you turn. Anyway, um, but that and then the party at the rot gut rot gut punch you have the audacity to tell me 
Anthony Broadwater or any other random nigger did this. They got a crowbar or whatever, and they crawled Bill Cosby, whoever. He crawled in through the window to rape the white woman. Urgh. You have a party with God knows who in the house who could have seen. Hmm. Tip jar. Hmm. I could just talk to these folks. Oh, what's your schedule, Pat? Oh, okay. He works over here. Okay. I got the lay in the house. This is where everything is. She says people are here. I don't even know. And we have rot gut punch that may have been spiked. She said the uh, chick passed out, right? Didn't she say that? She's walking to the door and bam. And you get maybe Anthony Broadwater did that too. He slipped something in the rot gut punch. Even rot gut punch. Why is that something I want to consume in underage drinking yet again? It's again it's not even just let me get a wine cooler. Let me get a glass of wine. Let me get a what is it? Let me get a Bud Light. Let me get a vodka and cranberry. No, 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 no. Let me get a shot of tequila. No, 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 no. Rot gut punch. Super freak is coming back. That's why I keep playing it. Like any other time, I would not be doing this. I'd be like, well, maybe you know who would lie about it. All I have heard is super freaky behavior from beginning to end, and it's not Anthony Broadwater. It is the white women and white men. I have heard nothing that suggests chaste, prudish, virginal behavior. This is all white debauchery. One of those party goers could have been the rapist, robber. That makes way more sense than what we're going to hear next week for the explanation which is not even founded in evidence but whatever the other point I forgot that was Z's moms brought up about the tone we had volunteers we had a whole team more than we've ever had for a book club uh, Dread 138 was one males and females lined up maybe Dread Natural Feminist in the group ready to read Alice Bold's book I said if she's going to read her own book let's hear her do it let's see where she puts the stresses and such at I said the same thing. It's no emotion. It's flat. Like, it's no drama. It, you've heard greater inflection in my voice in just commenting on this rubbish that I think is dishonest and racist. She says she's a victim. I didn't hear any emotion about anything. It's like she's reading the phone book. If I'm reading about my rape by Negra, it's no inflection for the jokes. It's no inflection for the drama of the trial. Nothing. It's just flat the whole way through. Maybe that's how she behaves. I don't know. Maybe that's the impact of the drugs and what have you. If you've been snorting cocaine, maybe it's difficult to get excited uh, to go back and read your book or what have you. But man, that also makes me wonder because we've heard 10 years of audiobooks even when some of the listeners have participated to read we've heard greater inflection and emotion for books that were not about anything emotional at all chalk that up and process it however you feel uh, any other thoughts folks had to get in thoughts questions things that stood out Uh, have you heard? Yes, sir. 
Um, I had dropped out. I don't know if anybody had touched on um, her apology. Um, I, I read her apology and had no accountability. She tried to blame it all on the system, and and she was the one in the courtroom pointing him out. No accountability whatsoever. We didn't we didn't touch on the uh, her apology. I don't think today, and I don't think we spent a whole lot of time commenting on it at all, really, during the uh, book club. Uh, maybe we can include that for next week. Less folks want to have that at right now. Uh, but I do know it's been that same type of thing. Some of the folks who have written about it and talked about it have said the same thing that she she pulled the white ignorance card that she didn't know about race. Oh, I guess I did say a little bit about that before, but she played the white ignorance card that she didn't know about racism at the time that these issues weren't being talked about back then. So she just wasn't thinking about all this. And like you said, just blame it on the system uh, so-called, but I mean, with this book, there would be quite uh, a bit of white racist culpability uh, to spread around. She, enforcement officers, the prosecutors, Syracuse security, like lots of folks. But no, this is this is not one where she can say I'm a virgin and innocent and pure and fair. And I nah nah nah. This but the poem alone would be enough. Hush, wench racist as charged don't say anything we don't even need another apology just stand by your that's just stand by the poem stand by your book and stand by the poem any other thoughts folks wanted to get in questions folks the apology folks wanted to get any thoughts in on that again we will wrap it all up next week back to the normal time on Thursday any other thoughts We'll assume folks are all good for today. Uh, much obliged for, I guess, hanging in there with the program switch and everything. Folks were ready to roll uh, on time for Wednesday. Uh, it'll be back normal time uh, next Thursday. Uh, so as to wrap it up, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, the reason that we had to do this is because we will have a program tomorrow with a white guest super excited uh, should be Chuck Stewart. He's a white uh, journalist. Uh, editor uh, from the Texas area, actually from the Dallas area, which will be even funnier. Um, but he should be here at normal time where we would be doing the book club, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, specifically, uh, he caught my attention. He wrote a report. Uh, I believe I posted. I did. It's uh, uh, from a couple days back, but you know, uh, I think you should be able to find it. No problem. Uh, I posted it and it's at the Dallas morning news his report it's titled uh, at age four I was growing into a bigot my word until Ella Mae Thurman changed my life and of course you can guess Ella Mae Thurman uh, is a black female uh, his nanny uh, from when he was growing up who was taking care of him at the age of four uh, I would encourage you like it's a great counter counter racist exercise to read the report it's not super long uh, it's not as grueling as one of these poems uh, but check it out. He'll be here tomorrow. Uh, I'm excited for many reasons. Um, <laughs> the whole history of white supremacy racism, right? I feel like white people talking about the black female nannies uh, that they've had and their impact, right? The help to kill a mockingbird. I mean, 
Mammy, Alja, how, how much, how far do you want to go back? Like we've had a number of white guests on the program from all over the world. We've had a white woman out in South Africa who did the same thing, uh, coming in. Oh, she just was so great and loving and yum, yum, yum and all the rest. But yeah, we'll be here for all of that, uh, tomorrow. <laughs> That's on my list of questions. Have you seen the help? Especially if you look at some of the letters that people wrote to the editor about all this. You Have you seen the help? You're familiar with Al Jolson? You can see a photo of uh, Chuck Stewart, the white man who should be with us tomorrow, so he's older. You've heard, you're old enough, you, you've heard Al Jolson's mammy. You've seen the help or read it. You're familiar with the long history of white people and their mammies, yes? Mm-hmm. I am excited, more excited than I should be for something, you know, this goofy, but white man, white guests only. That's why we are book club irregular today, white guests tomorrow, and then we can get back on schedule with things Friday for neutralizing workplace racism. But uh, if you tune in tomorrow for the book club, you will only be mildly disappointed because we will be on. It just won't be the book club. Chuck Stewart in Texas. Anywho. Uh, much obliged for everyone's participation. I hope it was worthy of your Wednesday evening. For all of the reasons we heard today, sobriety would be best. I don't think rot gut punch is going to improve things for black people, victims of racism. In addition to being sober, if you are out and about, my God, they could be on the lookout for racists. Excuse me, rapists. That's what they should be on the lookout for racists. But no, 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 no. You could have another crew like what we heard where they're out looking for Negro rapists with crowbars and bats. So be very alert. Uh, you do not want to have random confrontations with folks. We heard from retired firefighter this past weekend. You should be thinking this Prella is out being he, she is out being loud and hostile they could be armed more than just a crowbar in fact they could have an entire entourage like the folks that we read about ready to cause that's what they said ready to kill that bastard if you didn't leave your residence prepared to do some killing or prepared to do some dying exit if you are in a vehicle you are sober buckled and not on the cell phone uh, just doing the small things that we can to stay safe, stay away from race soldiers, badge or no. And we need all of our attention. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim. Yeah. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>